0: Here's a breakaway now, and the puck gets away from Lucic, and Miller gets hammered
1: by Lucic, and Lucic is getting a penalty. Miller's down on the ice, and they ought to clean his clock. He took a dead aim at Miller. After Miller beat him to the puck and shot the puck into the sideboard. Ah!
2: You know, often when you work really hard to get to a certain point, there is a real lull after that point. For example, the Baltimore Ravens worked really hard to beat the Pittsburgh Steelers in Pittsburgh and to have that advantage and to try to win the division. You know that the Ravens have been in all these playoff games in the last bunch of years and none of them have been at home? Hmm. But then last week, they had, a, they had a letdown. Right, They couldn't quite beat the Seattle Seahawks on the road. And I feel like we're the Ravens today. <laughs> so I'd like to welcome everyone to episode number 51 of the Sportscasters. My name is Steve Bennett. My co-host is Don Ross.
3: So we got to not have a letdown.
2: Yourself. We have to not have the letdown because, you know, last week was our 50th show. right? And there was a lot of prep and build up and thought behind what would be the 50th show. That featured Mike Tarico and Dave Damoshek and Kerry J. Byrne. And you can find it on our website, www.sports-casters.com. And I feel like today is that next week. And it's really important that we bring it today. And I've had that in mind for a long time, which is why I have saved a few things up my sleeve for today. Sounds good. One thing that I could have unleashed on everyone last week, but I say for today is the return of Zach Rosenfield to the podcast. Zach, you score once known as Zach, you score now known as sooner. Zach, right? Zach is going to return towards the end of the show. Talk to us about college football. Talk to us about his life, how things are going. We've missed him. It's been a while. He was a, a staple of the first 20 episodes of the show. And then he kind of changed his career and we've just kind of been giving him space, letting him settle into his new role. Uh, but we've maintained contact, and he's excited to be on the show today. Also on the show today is the author of a fantastic book called Sweetness. And that author is Jeff proman And the book Sweetness is about Walter Payton, of course, nicknamed Sweetness. And it's one of the most misunderstood books in the history of sports literature. And we're going to get into why uh, later when we speak with Jeff. Also today on the show is Steve Rushen one of the many Sports Illustrated, Illustrated sportsillustrated.com writers. Actually, Perlman was an SI writer at one point also. Don, do you remember the famous article about John Rocker where he made negative comments? On the subway? Yeah. Yeah. Perlman wrote that article. Right, right. Right. And also from SI and SI.com, or at least being known best for that, is Steve Russian, who's going to be on the show today. He's someone I've chased for a long time, and he's going to join us. He's actually married to Rebecca Lobo, who played in the WNBA? and okay, right. Played at the University of Connecticut, and he had a brother who played Division One hockey at Providence, and also a brother who played Division One hockey at Notre Dame. Six uh, five guy, got to be six five to marry a WNBA player, <laughs> right, <bud? laughs> I guess so. And we're going to talk with Steve a little bit later. So we have a lot to do today. We have uh, Jeff Proman Steve Russian, and sooner Zach. Uh, I reminded you about episode 50 with uh, Mike Trico, Dave Damaschek, and Carrie J. Byrne. I want to thank all of them again for their participation last, last week, making episode 50 very special. And I also want to mention one other thing before we get going. I spent Sunday, seven hours of Sunday, doing a live blog at a website called www.proplayerinsiders.com. So it's proplayer and then insiders is plural, .com which is a website that is sort of owned by the National Football League PA. And I struck up a little bit of a deal with them to try to open up a pathway to get more NFL players on the show. Oh, nice. And to get a little bit more publicity for for the show. In exchange, I'm going to be doing live blogs every Sunday on their website, ProPlayerInsider.com.
3: On the Saints or um... Just
2: on a live blog. When 1 o'clock starts, I got the Saints on. I got the game of the week on. I got the red zone on. And I kind of oh, nice. just, just talk about what I see. So bounce around from game to game. And I thought it went really well last week. Even with the Saints game being as intriguing as it was, I didn't get too bogged down in the Saints game on the blog. And I didn't miss much in the Saints game because of the blog. Kind of was a little bit easier to balance than I thought, but the website for that is ProPlayerInsiders.com. so I encourage you to join me on Sunday afternoons and uh,
3: take a part in the blog. I have a dumb question real quick. Um, with the Sunday ticket, they wouldn't break away from that game because of time or anything like that would they no. okay because of all the strange like NFL like where you got to watch the people in the studio watch like overtime field goals and stuff like that it's bizarre, but they don't do that with that okay No
2: every game is played in its entirety. Okay. Regardless of the score. Good. All right. Let's, uh, we got a lot to do. Like I said, Jeff Perlman, Steve Russian, the return of Zacky score, now known as Sooner Zach. Let's get it started with three things. Let's play a game.
0: All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three, one. All righty.
2: I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback.
1: (laughs) This is the funnest night ever. Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All
3: right, my first thing this week is going to start with an audio clip. Uh, By now, you probably have heard it, but it bears repeating regardless.
0: Are you a pedophile?
1: No. Are you sexually attracted to young boys, to underage boys? Am I sexually attracted to yes. underage boys?
3: Let me stop it right there. The answer to that question is never to repeat the question. It's no. No. Like, that question starts...
1: Are you sexually attracted to young boys, to No underage boys? No, I'm not. No. Am I sexually attracted to yes. underage no, boys? No,
3: you're doing it wrong. It's no.
1: Sexually attracted? You know, I, I enjoy As young people. As opposed to what?
3: It's almost like he's considering, I, you thought. i right.
1: to be around them. Um... I, I. But no, I'm not sexually attracted. Took him, please. I think,
2: 16 yeah, seconds. Someone time to say no.
3: So that, of course, is uh, Jerry Sandusky, the accused child rapist in the Penn State scandal. Uh, totally botching an interview with Bob Costas. Boy, Bob Costas is great, though, isn't he? Yeah, he's good. What do you think Jerry Sandusky had in mind doing that interview? Because if it was to make himself look better, he failed. I think that's what he had in
2: mind, and I, I think he did resoundingly fail. Yeah. I think he thought that, let me go on with the most respected of sports broadcasters. Let me answer the hard questions. I know he probably figured it would have been pointless to be on, and with a, it would have been worse to go on with someone who was going to lob him softballs. And, and I think he did the right thing by picking Costas and going on that show. I, I think the problem is, is that... Of course, we have to presume the innocent, innocent until guilty. I think the problem is he was talking to a pretty guilty guy. Right, right. And sometimes it's hard to protect your
3: innocence if you're guilty. It apparently seems to be in this in this case. Uh, we only do this weekly right now. So, I mean, a lot of st- – I know we covered this kind of last week. But, again, that clip I think was from last night. Um, this is unquestionably – the biggest scandal in the history of college football. Absolutely. And this story is going to have legs well beyond one week. Penn, right. In Penn State, uh, we picked on them a lot. They did finally do the right thing in firing Joe Paterno. Uh, you I, thought that was the right thing? I think they had to. Yeah. Um, you
2: don't think there's any way he could have coached those last three games?
3: No. no. I, I don't think anyone... I don't I'm think, just playing devil's advocate. I, right. There's nobody... It did come out that Paterno did go to some authority. I think he went to somebody higher up the chain than him, not the police, but he did go to somebody. But the idea that these people would work alongside a guy that they know did what he did for ten years and not raise a question about it is a problem. And I, I think that for the NCAA, they couldn't hit that game could not have turned into a pep rally for Joe Paterno. Um, they did. Uh, Some students organized a candlelight vigil. It all Uh, kind of turned out pretty well as far as that goes.
2: Right. It first seemed like it wouldn't Uh, when he was originally fired and there was all the protests. Right. They were flipping vans. Yeah. It looked like it would be a disaster and that maybe they should cancel the game. But ultimately, I think that it kind of worked out for the NCAA where as the week went on, the focus kind of shifted to the victims. They raised $22,000
3: in the parking lot for uh, awareness for child abuse. The whole, the whole case is just very odd. Um, and like you said, most of the, the kids that were probably doing the protesting are probably just a very small, very visual minority because they they did it in an age where uh, everything immediately hits the news. So I, I don't think that necessarily reflects on the entire student body or anything like that. But in addition to that, it turns out the judge somehow is involved with the charity that Paterno was involved in. It's just a very strange... Strange case. And it, it makes you... It, I mean...
2: The judge had donated money to the charity that Jerry Sandusky worked oh, for. Okay,
3: right. When? The odd thing about this whole... Th- I mean, it makes... Buffalo isn't the biggest city in the world by any means. But it makes this seem like this is like some little house on the prairie type town. Happy where, Valley. Where the football coach is the most powerful... Pra- you know what I mean? almost so fo- like
2: he was Papa Smurf.
3: <laughs> Absolutely. So hopefully this... Sandusky story. I, I don't. I don't know what to even say about it. The, his we'll comments talk, with Costas were unbelievable. But we'll like, talk more about this
2: story with Zach later, and also I'm going to ask Jeff Perlman, a biographer, what he would do if he were in the sh- the unenviable shoes of our friend Joe Paznansky who has been living in right. Happy Valley all year, preparing to write an autobi- a biography about Joe Paterno.
3: And I th- I think he's. Taken, taken up a little bit for Paterno. He he's tried to toe the line. Right, right, and I guess but he I doesn't.
2: Guess, I feel for him. I, I'm not gonna. Re- I'm not gonna read into his comments too much. I know some people killed him on him. Right. I'm not going to because just. I th- I think that's the. It's just an ultimate case where you need to try to put yourself in his shoes. Think about what goes into writing a book. All the time you put in, all the interviews you do. Right. He left his family, his wife and his daughter, to be in State College for the entire year, a year that he thinks might be the last year for the person he's writing the book about. He's expecting to see the conclusion of a fantastic career. And then at the last second, he gets a thesis changing scandal dropped on him.
3: Right, He's 50,000 words into a (laughs) 60,000 page book. The, the problem with it is, like you said, he might be towing the line and not taking a side, but by not taking a side when on one side it seems to be a monster and on the other side is little kids, it's, it's going to yeah, not it's, come off It's well. like the rush line. If you choose not to decide, you still have made
2: a choice. Right, right. It's almost like if you don't pick up for one, everyone's going to say, well, then you're picking up for a child molestation. station. Right. So it's yeah, an unbelievable circumstance. Right. And I'm sure,
3: like you said, we'll have to revisit this time and time again including later. Right. All right. My first thing today,
2: I just wanted to talk a little bit about the quarterback injury in the National Football League. Injuries are a part of sports. They happen in all sports. Golfers are injured. Tiger Woods has underwent two or three years now of just being injured and not being able to be himself. No injury is quite as jarring in team sports as the quarterback injury. The one that I – could think of closest is the goaltending injury in hockey, but the sport of football, especially the way the National Football League plays it, it's a quarterback league. And when quarterbacks get hurt, everything about your team suddenly changes. And we've seen it in in New York, uh, excuse me, in Indianapolis this year with oh yeah the Peyton Manning injury and this team that never seemed to lose games in the regular season. They're owing a. Oh, and 10 right now. And uh, the reason I wanted to bring it up this week specifically is because Matt Schaub, who is the starting quarterback for the seven and three Houston Texans, a team that we've speculated on this show may have quietly been getting healthy and getting to the point of being the best team in the AFC. He's gone for the season and they have to turn to Matt liner. I want to ask you, Don, what do you think is left of the Texan season? Can they overcome this? And B, think about your team for a second, and where would they be without their quarterback?
3: Wow. Um, can they overcome it with Matt Leinart? The positive they have, and I don't know what their schedule is right now, but they are in a nice spot in that division. Uh, the chances I know, are they
2: could probably still win the division regardless.
3: Right. I know they have the Texans behind them, but they're two games behind them. I the believe, Titans. Or the Titans, I'm sorry. Uh They're two games behind them. I believe one of those games was a loss to Houston. So on the plus side, if it was going to happen, this isn't week 16 that it happened. It's week 10. So Leinart has eight weeks, or they have eight weeks left, right? They have eight games left. The
2: Titans lost to the Texans in week 7, 41-7. The Texans are going to have one week to think about it. They're on a bye this week. Then they have Jacksonville, Atlanta, Cincinnati, Carolina, Indianapolis, and
3: Tennessee left on their schedule. you never want your starting quarterback to go down. But if you're going to write a scenario where he does go down, this might be the absolute best-case scenario. You get Liner, two weeks to work with the starters. You have two great running backs. You've got two excellent, excellent running backs, um, which maybe Ben Tate will be something worth talking about in Five on Fantasy. Um, And your team really is well-balanced. They have a good defense as well. So I think if Leinart can just be okay, this and team— get the ball to Andre Johnson. Right, when he comes back. He's right. hurt, but he should be back soon, maybe not maybe this week. Maybe even after the bye. Yeah, maybe. That's right. They do have two weeks still. But uh, they're, they're still a good team. And in that division, I, I think they're still the best team. The interesting thing about Houston is— uh, Super Bowl talk is over, though, right? I don't think their defense is exactly the Ravens or the Buccaneers defense that won a Super Bowl. So unless Leinart is the guy that was drafted all of a sudden at whatever pick it was, 14, 13 in the draft, then I think they're going to struggle to win a Super Bowl. See, this is why I brought up this issue, because here's a team 10 weeks into the season, many people are considering the best
2: team in the AFC. They know there's going to be injuries, but the one player they couldn't have, they lost their best player. Right. And Andre Johnson. They survived that. Yep. But then when they lost their quarterback, who might arguably be the fourth or fifth best player on the team, that's what killed them. Yep. Because in this league, you can't win without your quarterback. Ask Indianapolis. And now uh, Ben Roethlisberger has a broken finger. We'll have to monitor that, see how that affects the rest of the Steelers season. Matt Castle was injured, had to be replaced last week. See how that affects the Chiefs season, which is in spiral anyway. And, you know, it's just it's it's a unique piece of sports and maybe a good segue into your number two.
3: The interesting thing today, uh, I heard Aaron Schatz talking, and they have their own metrics used to judge uh, how good a team is. And they actually didn't have Green Bay as the number one team in the league. They had Houston. Um, I don't Not know if there's anymore. any way to account for injuries or if it's just the type of thing that their computers will change going forward. But, yeah, so he, they thought... Their numbers, however they're determined, thought that highly of Houston. And now, like you said, that position takes it right out of it. Um, My number two thing this week has to do with the Sabres and Bruins game this Saturday. I thought about, would this be relevant? I mean, we try not to do too many two-local stories. But this was really the talk of the NHL over the weekend. It was? Um, If you haven't seen it, Milan... Actually, I have a clip here. Let me load this up. Oh, no, I'm sorry. We played the clip off the top. The the clip we played, Milan Lucic got a loose puck. Uh, it got away from him a little bit, maybe, I don't know, 20 yards ahead of him. And in a race to the puck, Miller beat him out by probably a good 10 feet, and Lucic ran him over. Uh, bowled him over. Bowled him over. It. I don't think anyone outs, or outside of Boston – would say that he wasn't trying to do it. I think everyone knows he was trying to hit him. He didn't go out of his way to hit him necessarily. Didn't have to, though. But, right, he didn't. He just kept in the straight line he was in. He didn't let up. He, right through him. He didn't crush him either. He probably could have hit him harder. I mean, I guess you could say if you're a he Bruins He hit him
2: pretty hard as right. far as a forward hitting a goalie.
3: But the bigger issue it brought up was the Sabres wilted afterward. They did. Um They wilted on the scoreboard, and they wilted in terms of team toughness, which is a big deal in hockey. Maybe it's not a big deal in other sports, but in hockey it's all about these intangibles and things like toughness. Uh, They kind of cried to the media for him to be suspended, which didn't happen. Shanahan, who seemed annoyed almost by the Sabres' comments publicly. uh, Which is why I think he didn't get suspended,
2: by the way. I think that if the Sabres say nothing – Luchish gets a game. I think Shanahan was sending a message to the Sabres to shut up and let him do his job. Maybe that's my personal opinion. Uh, he, because his he, excuse that there, he couldn't prove intent—that's
3: baloney. Right. What does intent mean if, if that wasn't intent? Right. It, he didn't get. He didn't try to get out of the way. So I mean, if there's, if, if not trying, not trying to get out of the way is the same as trying to hit him. Then. I
2: just don't buy that there was an intent.
3: No, absolutely. And I, I don't think anybody realistically does either. But like I said, the bigger issue it raises if you're a Sabres fan is about the toughness of the team. Maybe it calls into question uh, the team's support of Miller, who has been t- uh, had a tough run this year. And I almost think it makes the Sabres sound like whiners a little bit. Yep. And Sabres don't look great here. I, I love the Sabres. They're my favorite team. Like, I know I'm in the minority in the city, but... If it were between the Bills winning a Super Bowl and the Sabres winning a Stanley Cup, I would take the Stanley Cup. But the fans are not whiners in this case. Sabres fans can be fickle, but in this case, I think most of the fans are calling the Sabres out, too. Like, Do you saying, think part of that is because the fans, at the time that it happened, were, m- were so frustrated with, with Ryan Miller.
2: Miller and wanted Jonas Enroth to be playing a bigger part in the team? and they're the fans almost, like, just jumped on this. As a so way if that,
3: Enroth was in the game and got bowled over and the team did nothing, you don't think the... I think that the fans would be more on the side of the Sabres in that case. Maybe. I mean, that's possible. For whatever reason, even when Patrick Lalime, For and whatever
2: reason, it just feels like the city doesn't want to support Ryan Moore Miller right now. Right. Because we brought up off the air a situation where this a similar thing happened to Chris Jury... And I remember doing this, the Sabres doing a lot of talking
3: about it after, and I remembered the fans talking right with them. Oh, about wanting Chris Neal to be suspended. Right. And, right. But the interesting thing, even back then, you can go back to what year was that, 2007? No, it was earlier than that. It was 2000, 2006. Six. Yep. Okay. So in 2006, uh, the Sabres respond to that hit by sending their goons after basically the Ottawa All-Stars. All this build up to the next game, Nothing comes of it, right? They never addressed it with Chris Neal, and that's kind of become the problem with the Sabers in general. Is they don't they don't address the problems with the people that cause them; they kind of whine to other people. And I'm a Lindy Ruff supporter, but this has kind of, I think, become his mo. And but Lindy Ruff has said a couple of smart things in the wake of this.
2: One, he said, you know, this is going to give a ch- that the the Sabers have been a team that have a lot of new parts. This year, right? right? This is an opportunity for that team to, f- to rally around each other, to find each other. To Maybe the reason people didn't immediately respond is because there wasn't the clarity in whose job it was. Maybe. Maybe Cody McCormick didn't know if he was supposed to do it or if Paul Gostad was supposed to do it. Do you think this has anything to do with it? If the, Robin Regeer was supposed
4: to do it. Do you
3: think the Tyler Myers benching has anything to do with him being out there and doing nothing? I mean, he's a 6 that's part of it. guy. Yeah, that was part of it. Yeah, that's part of not being good enough. If you're
2: if you're, you're six-eight and that good, and that happens to your goalie, you need to do something. If you don't, that's part of just not being good enough, right? And all the the his terrible plus-minus and all the bad passes he's made—that's all part of it as well. But I think, I think here's what I think: Lucic should have been suspended for a game or two because clearly he intended to hit the goalie. And I don't think the message should have been sent by the NHL that, it's, that that's a clean play. That was a dirty play. He should have got a game or two. Right. He's a dirty player. We all know what he was thinking. Number two, the Sabres were mental midgets. They crippled at the opportunity to rally around a teammate. But I'm encouraged by the fact that they've realized it, they've accepted it, they've apologized for it, and I'm
3: hopeful that they can rally around it. Right, guys like Gostad said all the right things. Gostad said he apologized to Ryan Miller and said it won't happen again. I mean, I know that's that doesn't sound like much, but to say like publicly, look, we were weak there. I mean, he, you know what will happen again is Ryan Miller's going to take another shot. Uh, just last
2: night in the Sabres game, Eric Cole, Eric Cole knocked down Jonas Enroth. In the overtime. Sabres did everything right. It's in overtime. You're not going to challenge anyone at that point. Not when you're in overtime against a division team, you're going to try to win that game on the power play and get revenge that way. But someone's going to take another run at the Sabers' goalie in a time when the Sabers are winning the game two to nothing or one to nothing, like the case was earlier, and they're trying to change the tone of the game, like Lucic was. That's going to be the test
3: to see how the team responds next time, and there will be a next time. Oh, absolutely! It seems I'm sure it happens to all goalies, but. Uh the Sabres goalies always seem to get hit, and maybe it's because they have this reputation of not responding. So my last part of this, I know we're going a little long on this part, but uh, the Sabres right now are one point out of first place in the conference. Yep. They've had a great start, really. So regardless of all this, and you can see it by watching them. I've watched every game. They are not they haven't gelled all that well, minus the top line. Right. They're inconsistent. Yep. Uh, the goalie play has been uneven. I suppose Miller's play, I should say, has been uneven and yet here they are at the, top, at the top of their division and right near the top of the conference. So my question is to you this. Um, you always hear that teams have to be willing to do whatever it takes to win a Stanley Cup. You have to have tough teams, this and that. Is it always the case necessarily that a team is tough that wins the Cup, or is that a retroactive thought? Like with the Carolina Hurricanes, the year they won that Stanley Cup, were they a tough team, or were they tough afterward because they won the Cup? Were they the luckiest Stanley Cup champion in history? Well, okay. Uh, Were the... Let's go... I'm just trying to think of a team. My my thought is here... The 94
2: Rangers weren't that tough. I mean, they had players like Alexei Kovalev who had to play the whole third period because... Let's say it's just
3: post-lockout teams. Okay, The Ducks were tough. Okay, They were considered a tough team. The Senators pushed around the Sabres, and then the Ducks pushed around Ottawa. Were the Red Wings that tough in 2008? Were the Penguins that tough? Were the Penguins that tough? Were the Blackhawks that tough? I think this toughness thing is slightly overrated. Like I said, I don't want to see my team just wilt the way they did, but I think guys that play hard is more important than guys that... That played dirty or towed that line. Is Patrick Coletta really going to be all that valuable in a play, in like a Stanley Cup series? He's never going to win an MVP. If he, he keeps penalty killing the way that he well, is. Yes. he's going to have some value. <laughs> he does. Uh,
2: here's what I'm going to say about your basically your last point here: the Sabers being one point out now, having had trouble at the beginning of the season at home, having troubles with inconsistency, not sticking up for Ryan Miller, having to gel under a new owner under with all these new parts, saying goodbye to Tim Conley, saying hello to Robin McGeer, all these different things, just shows me that this team is going to be a top-four seed in the Eastern Conference. They're going to easily win enough games over the course of this part of the season. The trade deadline is going to be huge. They're probably one piece away. Right. And they have the potential
3: to make a run at the Stanley Cup. So the idea here is they have— They're just going to get better and better. They have 60— Five games to figure out these chemistry And issues. they're going to get be- – every game they're going to get better. Right. That last night they went
2: into the third period of the game after the worst game of their season, down to nothing on the road. They got two goals from players that they need goals from in spots like that. Right. And then they won in the shootout. You can't ask for anything more than that. And
3: that's just a small piece of proof of them getting better. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, like I said, it's. I don't have necessarily a stance in the toughness argument. It's just that I, I think it's – maybe you do need it, but I think it's overrated in the minds of like hockey purists. All right, my second thing. It was announced today
2: that Justin Verlander was the unanimous winner of the AL Cy Young Award. Not a really big shock there. Uh, his numbers were pretty outstanding for the season. Uh, he was 24-5. and 5 he had 250 strikeouts his ERA was 2.40 and uh he was outstanding all season. Uh he drew 28 first place votes and finished with 196 points which is obviously the most you can get. Jared Weaver who had a pretty decent season was second with 97 points. Uh J- big, big game James James Shields of the Tampa Bay Rays was third. Uh CC Sabathia fourth. Um Congratulations to Justin Verlander. The I guess the next question that everyone's going to be asking is, is this the only award that he will win this off season, or will he also be chosen as the AL MVP when they pick it out next Monday? We will be able to talk about this more next week when the decision is made. We obviously record on Tuesday, so the award is given out on Monday.
3: Uh, no starting pitcher has won the that MVP that. since – Uh, 1986. What's your thought on that? Are are they valuable enough to a team to win it, even though they play a fifth of the games of a second baseman? Well, the last starting pitcher,
2: like I said, was Roger Clemens in 1986, and the last pitcher in general was Dennis Eckersley, a closer in 1992. I don't think that the pitcher should win it. I think the MVP is an everyday award. Uh, There's only so much a pitcher can do on those four days
3: off. Not to put you on the spot, but what was? Do you have Clemens' numbers from that year? I I can get them real quick. I know that they were they were unbelievable. So it takes an unbelievable season, like and you said, uh, Verlander was twenty four and five. I mean, that's pretty unbelievable. If you're instrumental in twenty four wins, and you multiply that out, but if you had all, if all of your starting pitchers played that well, you'd be the best team in the league by a mile in nineteen eighty six. He had a very similar twenty
2: four Roger Clemens had a very similar twenty four and four record. Um he had more strikeouts. wait no, nope, less strikeouts. He had two hundred and thirty-eight Verlander to Verlander's two hundred and fifty. Uh his ERA was two point four eight. Uh he had ten complete games, one shutout, uh pitched two hundred and fifty four innings, his whip
3: was point nine, six nine Wow, I mean, if that, if that's the precedent, I would argue that Verlander's is more impressive because this is definitely a more of a hitters era. It it, it seems like. I mean, I know they actually no, this was the year of the pitchers. It, it, it seemed like because of the more stringent drug testing and I I, th- I think Verlander's qualified and his stats are qualified. If you
2: are willing to vote for a pitcher, pitcher, right? I think you make an argument for him. I just am more that the Cy Young is the pitcher's award. The MVP is a day-to-day award. And the reason that I've argued that David Ortiz shouldn't win it in the past is because he doesn't play a position. Well, this is the same thing, especially in the AL. Verlander doesn't hit. So one half of the game, Verlander doesn't take any part of. Right. He never comes to bat.
3: So he's only playing half of every fifth game. Yes. (laughs) Not enough,
2: in my opinion. But we'll talk about it more next week. We'll see what the voters have decided.
3: Fair enough. And my last story this week is a little bit of an uplifting one. We've had a lot of negative sports stories lately. But Wilson Ramos, the or Ramos, the catcher for the Washington Nationals, which sadly this story was really uh buried by the whole Sandusky like everything else right. that's going on right now, I guess. Washington Nationals catcher Wilson Ramos was kidnapped in uh this is uplifting. Venezuela. <laughs> well, like, or in the city of Valencia. You gotta be careful there. Yeah, Ramos is twenty-four. He hadn't been heard of since being seized at gunpoint outside his home in Valencia last Wednesday, so the day after we podcasted and he was taken away in an SUV. Uh is the first known kidnapping of a baseball player in Venezuela, and the abduction set off an outpouring of candlelight vigils, public prayers. Like I said, you hate to see that nobody heard about it here, here because of Sandusky and Penn State. Right. That said, uh he was found. Found alive, Woo-hoo! more importantly, and he was rescued by Venezuelan authorities. They re- arrested four of the captors, all of them Venezuelan men, in their 20s. And they also arrested a 60-year-old woman and a 74-year-old man who were supplying the kidnappers with food. Yeah, you can't so, feed a kidnapper. Yeah, you That's don't want to be goes. doing that. Yeah. Um, the the best quote here, when it, you off the air, asked me for their motive, and his quote He said his abductors spoke little to him. Quote, they simply told me to cooperate that they were going to ask for a ton of cash for me. So (laughs) I guess their motives were pretty clear. Uh, It doesn't say that they actually went out and asked for a ton of cash, but just happy to see. uh, Usually these kidnapping stories don't end well, but this one did. And I'm sure the Washington nationals and his family and just everybody is uh, happy to see that it did. All right. My last thing, uh, we are in the middle of twenty four straight hours of college
2: basketball started at midnight last night oh really, to kick off the season yep there was uh games from midnight to midnight uh I know one of the games number ten Memphis beat belmont ninety seven to eighty one number eleven baylor beat san diego state seventy seven to sixty seven the big game tonight is at 7 o'clock. It's Duke versus Michigan State. And it's not just because, you know, Duke is Duke. It's because that tonight Coach K has a chance to become, uh, to surpass his mentor, Bob Knight, as n- at number one on the NCAA Division I men's victory list. It would be his 903rd victory as coach. Uh, obviously him and Bobby Knight are tied at 902. So congratulations. Congratulations to Coach K. If, if it doesn't happen tonight, it's going to happen soon. Uh, he's been to 11 Final Fours. He's had 13 ACC tournament titles. Um, he's won three national champion, four national championships. Uh, and he's always run a clean program. And a lot of people hate Duke and are jealous of Duke. Yeah, but he seems I've like always had trouble with that because he always gets the best kids. He gets the nicest kids. People like Grant Hill... You know, our uh, all of what Duke basketball is about. So I wanted to congratulate Coach K. I know he's a listener. Uh, <laughs> thank him for uh, listening and uh, congratulate him on his
3: 903rd victory. Okay. Sometimes I think I'm on the podcast to ask dumb questions, but <laughs> didn't is Bob Knight coaching still? I know after the, all the scandals in not. Indiana, he went to coach no, somewhere he, else, though, right? Texas Tech. Okay, but he has since retired. He works for ESPN. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. Yeah, this should be uh this should be a big night for ESPN and college basketball. It uh doesn't help the NBA that they have a big night like this. Uh like you said, people are going to turn their attention to this or, or hockey. So the basketball needs to get something done and it looks like they're getting further and further apart. And we didn't mention that, but uh, yeah, the players um rejected the last deal. They're going to decertify
2: their union. They're going to challenge the antitrust uh the funny, exemption that the league has, and it's a when, terrible battle.
3: Right, and when I first heard that, my thought was these players are looking at the football struggle as the model, and that's delusional. They're all, and you know what? The players have lost the support of everyone at this point. Right. Uh, even Michael Jordan yep. is against the players. It, to look, that was like I said, that was my first thought. They're going to break apart the union, like you said, so they could take it to court that because that's what the NFL did but the NFL has a billions and billions and billions of dollar product like every team in that league could sell for a billion dollars without a problem the NBA bleeds money and the players don't seem to care or don't get it i mean they have some terrible representation there yeah and they've lost all support and they're not going to get it back and when the season is canceled they're going to be the ones that are blamed yeah and i heard they were aiming we said I think two or three weeks ago that the first game would have been played. They said their goal is still to have a 72 game season by no way. I, th- I think sometime in December. Forget it. So that would be a crazy condensed schedule as it is. They'd be playing four games in a week. It yeah, seems that's like. not going to happen. Yeah, the that's, players would never agree to that. That's misguided optimism. That won't happen. So, uh, so long uh, NBA season. It looks like. All yeah. right. So long. Three things till next week.
2: We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with Jeff Perlman, and uh, we'll go from there. So we'll be right back. Our first guest today is from Mayoac, New York, and is a graduate of the University of Delaware. After college, he started his career in journalism, writing about food and fashion in Nashville, Tennessee. In 1996, he was hired by Sports Illustrated, where he spent seven years writing mostly about baseball. He authored the infamous John Rocker piece that ran in the magazine in 1999. After SI, he spent two years writing for Newsday, but left to focus on writing books. He has written several books that have appeared on the New York Times bestseller list, including his biography about the 1986 Mets called The Bad Guys Won. He has also written books about Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, and the 1990s Dallas Cowboys. His latest book, Sweetness, The Enigmatic Life of Walter Payton, explores the days of an amazing, mysterious, misunderstood football icon. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented and engaging Jeff Perlman. How are you doing today, Jeff?
0: Um, that was a very uh that was a very nice intro.
2: Yeah, you're one of the few people whose intro outlasted their fight song. Nice. Yeah, that happens, you know, maybe 1 out of 5. So. Right. Congrat- congratulations you. on that small honor. <laughs> uh, how you doing? I'm good. Yeah, I'm very good. Uh, uh Yeah. I, I think you know, is this a, is we we've, we've we've interviewed a lot of authors and uh we really enjoy books on the show and we've read many of the most current sports books with our listeners and it always culminates this way but I think this might be the first time where we've spoken to an author who's been kind of almost forced to be so out in front of the book defending it. I don't know that and I don't know if that's the way you would describe what you've had to do. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't but it feels like to me that from the excerpt ran in sports illustrated you've been kind of on the defense just begging people to take a look at the whole story and not kind of judge the book by the just the initial piece in si Is, Has this been a unique experience for you and was this anything that you ever expected
0: uh yeah it's definitely been unique and uh the part you're describing uh which i think you described accurately was not not my uh most joyful time in like my, my career um yeah, it just was different, you know, because usually you you release a book and people sort of read it and form their opinion. And in this case, Sports Illustrated ran an excerpt before it came out. It's the first time I've had, I guess, an excerpt appear in that many hands. And it was a uh, the excerpt was sort of a dark period of of Walter Payton's life. And I think people, especially in Chicago, and especially people very loyal and protective of Walter Payton, uh, were taken aback and thought, "Up, here's some guy coming along writing a uh, a slash and burn biography of Walter Payton." and uh... So it's taken me a while to sort of get people to actually have people read the book and realize that there was anything but the sort. And it it wasn't fun. It was uh, it was sort of miserable for a few weeks.
2: Well, you know, I've been kind of I've been following you on Twitter, obviously, and it seems like as the weeks have gone on and more people have had time to read the book and digest the book and think about the book, it seems like there's been more and more positive reviews. Have those positive reviews been even more rewarding in this case because of how things started than say a positive review that you may have got right off the bat for the, uh, the New York Mets or the, you know, the uh, one of your other books.
0: Um, no, I wouldn't, uh, I mean, the easy answer is yes. I I, it's always it always makes you feel good when you see a positive review. I mean, you don't put that much you don't put incredible stock in it because it's just an opinion, and people have negative and and positive. I think I do think though what sort of uh, made me feel a little better is getting sort of emails and tweets uh, from people, Facebook messages from people who have apologized for being so heated early on and jumping, rushing to judgment, and then saying, "But then I read the book and I realized." Uh, I was off in your in the assessment that they were off in the assessment of the book, so you know well i mean i don 't you know if some guy in some newspaper reads the book and likes it i 'm happy but but the uh, message i 've really been trying to get across uh since i since it, the initial s i excerpt is if you read the book, I really think you 'll see that they, this is a misjudgment and uh, so I, I think people have seen it and, and that 's pretty satisfying for me
2: well let 's get into it a little bit here because i uh did read the book i Love the book. I was, I think, pretty vocal about that. Um, there is a page on jeffperlman.com, dot com, which is your blog, which you update quite frequently, and uh, there is a sec- section right on the front called "About Sweetness" that does explain this a little bit. But I want you to get a little bit more into it because I kind of have a, a different angle. I want to ask you a real simple question of why Walter Payton, but I don't want to leave it as just why Walter Payton. I kind of want to tell you my motivation for that question, and that is it seems like you've been maybe notorious or known for writing about 'er ne'er-do-wells in your career, the Barry Bonds, the Roger Clemens, the Peace on John Rocker, the 86 Mets, certainly plenty of bad guys, the 90 Cowboys, bad guys. So why did you decide to get into a book about a guy that we've always had an impression on, was such a great guy, and did you have any inkling that when you started digging you would find out the skeletons that you did about Walter
0: Payton? Uh, to answer your second question, no. Although you, I mean, you you could research anybody. You could do a biography of Mother Teresa, or, you know, the Pope or whoever, some rabbi or whatever, and you'll, if you do enough, if you do a thorough job, you'll find out that we all have our warts and our you know, our problems. So it's not, I wasn't naive. I don't think I didn't think, you know, walked on water and, you know, never went to the bathroom. Um, but I certainly didn't really know about the negatives. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. Like when you put all the, the stuff I've done, when you group it, you know, in the way you do it, you did. And a lot of people do, I can understand why people say, oh, this is a dirt digger and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I've had a, you know, I, I've been a journalist since 1994 I've had a pretty long career and you know, I'd say ninety eight percent of the things I've written and ninety eight percent of the people I've written about were were not of any sort of there was no scandal at all and there was no you know, his profiles for a about Gary Sheffield and J D. Drew and pieces for Newsday about chefs and flute players and nine eleven victims and and things like that. But you know the rocker thing definitely stamped on my head a little bit of a reputation. And, uh, you know, the 86 Mets, uh, you know, that was a book. That was a team I loved as a kid. I mean, I grew up in New York right in that era. I mean, that was my boyhood. Uh, And Bond and Clemens just happened to be guys I covered, but I understand the perception. You know, I wrote about Peyton because I just thought here's an iconic individual who's never had a definitive biography, and they're harder and harder to find. I mean, if you go down the list of the true athletic icons uh, of the last century, um, you know, from Jesse Owens to Babe Ruth, to Ted Williams, to Joe DiMaggio, to Mickey Mano, to Willie Mays, to, you know, whoever, on and on. They've all been done to death. You know, they've all been a million biographies. And Peyton, for some reason, kind of slipped through the cracks. And I just thought when I, when I sort of, when his name came up and I started looking about what was known about him, I realized very little was known about him. And that makes a very attractive uh, guy to write about.
2: Let's, uh, okay, Let's let's get into the... The pages here now, and let's talk about some of the stuff that's actually in the book. Uh, I kind of want to start with Walter's relationship with his his birth family, because it seems like the beginning of the book, a lot of it is about setting up his life and, and where he grew up and what he grew up in, and his parents and his brother being this incredible star athlete. And I want to ask you about his relationship with his brother first. W- what was it about his relationship with his brother that, you know, I kept waiting for something... I kept waiting to read something that would make me say, oh, that's why they always kept a distance from each other. But I can never quite understand the dynamics between them. Uh, Why do you think they struggled to have uh, a a great relationship that I guess a lot of brothers have? Well,
0: you know, it's it's sort of complex and sort of not. I mean, you know, Eddie was uh, three grades ahead of Walter. You know, he was a senior. Walter was a freshman both in high school and in college at Jackson State. And I think, uh, you know, Walter, Eddie had a very cast a very large shadow. He was the outgoing, gregarious, boastful, good with the women, you know, quick humor, uh, sharp. And Walter was sort of shy and introverted, especially in high school, a little less so in college. You know, Walter didn't even start playing football until Eddie left for Jackson State. I mean, never play organized football until Eddie left for Jackson State because he, he, he didn't want to be in the shadow, and he knew what the shadow would be. Uh, and I think that set the tone. I mean, I just think there's a distance, a natural distance. But, you know, there's a there's a, a you know a three-year age difference, a grade difference, which is a big jump. You know, I think there's always a competitiveness with both of them. Uh, I certainly think Eddie, you know, Eddie was once asked, uh, you know, to when he was in the NFL for a brief spell, he was asked what it's like having a brother for a superstar. And his response was, go ahead, why do not you ask Walter that yeah. question? You know, and I, I think he sh- struggled – just like Walter struggled in being in the shadow of an older brother, I think Eddie shattered being in the shadow. Uh, struggled being in the shadow of a younger brother. You know, it's. it's I, I don't think it's the easiest thing in the world to both do the same profession, and your younger brother is the far, far, far superior, more famous, better compensated um, athlete. So I think those are two elements that sort of led to that. Uh, the sort of uh, you know friction is too strong a word, but the distance between the two of them.
2: Isn't it so interesting how that kind of cloud shift where when they were younger, Walter wouldn't play organized football because he didn't want to be in the shadow of his brother. And then by the time they were both in the NFL, Walter was uh, an emerging superstar and Eddie was a guy who just kind of finally made it over after starting off in the, in the CFL. I don't know if I could think another, of another example of uh, brothers who kind of switch roles like that in a five or six year period of time.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they're out there. I mean, certainly, you know, uh, I think Ken Brett and George Brett. Ken Brett was a far superior baseball player in the major leagues, I think. You know, but, yeah, it's, I mean, it's very interesting. It's very, you know, it's uh, it's all sort of cycle babble can go into that one, you know, and the effect of an older sibling doing this and a younger sibling doing this and how it impacts your personality. And, you know, it definitely had an impact on his life.
2: You mentioned uh when you talk about his father you mentioned quite a bit that his father was kind of known around town as as being being a drunk and I guess there's kind of a lot of evidence that Walter Payton's father was uh an alcoholic or an addict and we know that that is somewhat genetic and you spend some time in the book discussing uh Walter and his dependency on Darvon and his uh his uh kind of I guess amusement with uh, nitrous oxide or the laughing gas from the dentist if I'm calling it the right thing. Uh and a lot of people are really quick to say well Walter was not addicted. In your opinion, do you think Walter Payton was an addict that never really sought treatment for his problems?
0: Yeah, I yeah, I mean he was. It was, you know, it was it was painkillers. Mm-hmm. I think it's not you know, I I just think it needs to be qualified a little bit. You know, was he addicted to painkillers? I would say yes. Um, did that make him unique among former NFL players in that time period? Not even close. Um, and he played 13 years and his body took an absolute physical beating, you know, and he felt that price from the day he retired on and on and on. So, uh, yeah, was he addicted? I I would say yes. Um, can you tie that addiction to his, his dad? Uh, I just, it would be such pure speculation because his dad has been deceased for, you know, 30 years and, and it's hard to say His dad definitely liked to drink the Mad Dog 2020 in his backyard after work. I mean, that was sort of his thing. I don't know if he was an alcoholic. He definitely drank. Um, I don't know if you could tie the two, though. I I just don't know.
2: Right. And his dad was also maybe portrayed in the book slightly as a little bit of a womanizer. I always think of this line. um, It's it's an Eddie Vedder line where he says, uh, oh, dear dad, I am myself like you somehow do you think that that's where walter ended up maybe towards the end of his life kind of looking back and saying oh my god I, i've turned into my father and you know that was maybe something i never intended to be do you think walter payton was a lot like his father towards the uh middle to end of his life
0: no i don't actually okay. i don't at all and i don't think that uh that occurred to him i don't th- i don't think walter payton had uh I don't think, uh, you know, I think he, he definitely took stock of his life. I'm not so certain he took, you know, he thought of himself as a womanizer, or, I, I mean, he was. Um, I don't, I, you know, there was nothing that ever showed him making comparisons between his own life and his father's. Um, I think he was haunted by his father's death. I definitely think he was haunted by the way his father died in Mississippi in a jail cell, all alone, uh, you know, put there because people thought he was drunk and he was dying from, actually, in actuality, dying of a brain uh, aneurysm. I think that weighed a lot on him uh, over the years. I don't think he ever forgot it. I don't think he ever forgave his hometown. But do I think that he sort of compared his life to his dad? I don't, because they were so dissimilar, and the lives were just so drastically different. I mean, uh, you know, Walter Payton's dad had probably had more in common life wise with me or you than he did with his son. I mean, they just lived in totally different worlds and universes.
2: Why did Walter Payton's eventual kind of long term? girlfriend, what was it about her identity that she was so steadfast on protecting in the book that you had to name her something different?
0: Well, she didn't want to be, uh... You know, she... she was,
2: uh... And she's... You know, it's been hard for
0: her. Well, no. I mean, she loved Walter Payton. Loved Walter Payton. And did not love that this book was coming out. Okay. Wasn't happy about it. Um... Didn't, you know... She wasn't happy about it. Didn't want, he, didn't want it to come out. So like... Thought that uh, you know his life was his life, and she she had moved on. You know, it had been a lot of painful years for her. It was not an easy relationship period to begin with. I mean, she, he was married um, legally, and uh, she wanted to move on. You know, she didn't want she didn't want to keep that. She didn't want to think about it anymore. You know, I think she'd she'd sort of put Walter Payton and those years and those hardships behind her. So when someone calls you out of the blue and says, "Hey," I'm doing this book, you know her Her fear, and i I understood it was she didn't want people contacting her either i mean we we live in an era of t m z you know in dead spin and a right. million other entities that that you know do those kind of things and i I didn't think she really had anything to worry about but i I told her that I would protect her identity you,
2: you said that she wasn't happy about the book coming out. Did you get that a lot from his friends and family, or were no no,
0: I didn't actually, but okay. I will say. Uh, she was in a unique position. I mean, it wasn't—you know—it's one thing to be Walter's brother or Walter's kids, and you hear biographies coming out, okay. But it's another thing to be—you know—the so-called mistress. Uh, I mean, that's a very unique position, and I think she was. She just—you know—her. I think her number one is she, her. His his sort of legacy and memory are important to her, and number two, I think sincerely, she did not want people coming after her or finding her or looking for her. And I think it's very understandable.
2: Did anyone come to you after the fact that participated with the book and then had read it and were kind of like shocked with some things in it? Or did most of the people you interview kind of know what the score was going to be?
0: That's a good question. I mean, there certainly there were some people who, who were shocked by parts of it. And the other thing is like, I mean, it's an interesting thing when you're writing a book. People have their perspectives on something, and they have their viewpoints. And oftentimes we confuse our own personal viewpoints with fact when it's merely a viewpoint. You know, and and you may think one thing about Walter Payton, or you may think one thing about Columbia, Mississippi, and it's either not true or other people dispute it and and don't agree. So I think, you know, certainly some people, and I don't really want to get specifics, but but I think some people were sort of... I don't know, like you know, one guy. You know, know, I had a lot of debates with Bud Holmes. I'll be—I actually will be specific. Bud Holmes, his agent, who I love, absolutely, positively love, about whether my depiction of Columbia, Mississippi, was fair Uh, and Mississippi in general. He lives in the state. He's a lifelong Mississippian. He loves the state, and I think he thought that I was too hard on Mississippi during the uh, civil rights era. So there's an example of someone we spoke. I think we're friends. You know, we have a good relationship but he, he felt like the Mississippi take was way too harsh.
2: That's interesting. Is Bud Holmes to this day still the character that he was in the book? Does he still talk the way he talked? and Or has he kind of mellowed and kind of uh, maybe embraced the whole idea of political correctness a little bit more? Or is he still no, like, the same the guy? No, he's, <laughs> he's
0: the exact guy. He's the exact guy. He, he, man, when I first interviewed Bud Holmes, I was thrown for a loop because I'd never met another human being even remotely like him. He's a fascinating, fascinating guy. He's a kind of character you meet one time. You may never meet another guy like Bud Holmes. I know people say that as a cliche, but with him, it's true. And uh, he is unchanged. He is unflinching. He is brutally honest uh, and and insanely caring and giving and warm and decent. He is. I'm telling you, if you meet, you are not meet. You're lucky if you meet one guy like Bud Holmes in his life, in your life, and. He'll throw you off, and you won't agree with everything he says, and you won't agree with the way everything he goes about everything. But he is a very unique and warm and, I think, honest individual.
2: You mentioned TMZ a little bit ago, and I think it was maybe Kevin Butler, uh, the rookie kicker on the 85 Bears team, who might have said that, you know, thank God there wasn't camera phones. In our day, yeah. and uh, when, after I read that, I, I was kind of thinking about, well, what modern athletes have really been stung by this the most, and and I kind of came to A Rod, and I, I don't want to necessarily make a comparison between Walter Payton and A Rod, but it seems like A Rod has gotten in trouble for some of the things that Walter Payton maybe would have gotten in trouble for if he was a contemporary. How do you think his life would have been different, Walter Payton, if he lived in the cell phone TMZ? There's no way to keep a secret era uh
0: it's interesting. I mean, there's still ways to keep secrets. they're just harder, and I think uh, I think he would have struggled a little bit. Um, I think it'd be very hard in two thousand and eleven to have an out of weblock kid and have nobody know about it like really hard, really really, really hard uh, because the other thing is people print rumors now the thing the internet has done people always talk about like whatever the pictures and and, uh, you know, instant, you know, texting and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not texting, tweeting and everything. The thing that's really dramatic now is people print rumors. They don't just print facts, and they don't, you know, back in the day you write for a newspaper, you find out something, okay, who do you know, who can you call, look up, go to the county clerk's office, go to the Department of Records, look everything up, take a week, take two weeks, let's confirm this, let's make sure it's right, then we got to get back to them. But nowadays it's, uh, oh, my God, we heard so-and-so has an out-of-wedlock kid. We're gonna run it. Tweet it. All of a sudden, within, you know, minutes, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people have read about this. And and there's no there's no uh there's just not time put into confirming, denying, looking up, you know, understanding. Uh and I think a lot of guys from that era, Caton included, would have definitely had a little trouble with that.
2: You know, I have to admit that there was a lot of parts of the book that I could kind of understand Walter Payton's side. You know, I, 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 it's not hard for me to believe that NFL players uh, cheated on their wives or had a dependency on painkillers, and I almost wanted to say that wasn't their fault. But one thing that really hurt me I really maybe changed my perception a little bit about Walter Payton, who was the child out of wedlock. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought of the idea of the NFL Man of the Year Award being named after Walter Payton. After everything you've done, you're probably the most qualified person on the planet to answer this question right now. After all the research you've done, after all the people you talk to, do you still think that the NFL should have an award that's called the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award? I
0: definitely do. Uh, without question, I do. I mean, I think... I just like you know you see it now. This is an extreme, but you see it with Jerry Sandusky with everything that's going on right now. Now I'm not talking about the pedophilia, which is disgusting and disturbing and a million degrees beyond it. But with the uh, what's the guy's name, the coach who allegedly saw this going on, right?
2: McCleary, right? My, McCleary. yeah, right, right, right.
0: So if you listen to sports radio, and it's funny, I really did not listen to sports radio very much, but I've been riveted by the whole Penn State thing, and I've been listening nonstop when I've been driving. And you, li- if you listen to it. You would think every person in America would have stormed in there with a baseball bat and beaten this guy in the head, you know <laughs> like there's no doubt about it. I would have been in there in a second. oh, I would have been there in two seconds. you know what Bush, you know bull crap you wouldn't have maybe maybe thirty percent, maybe forty percent, maybe fifty percent of people would have, but a lot of people wouldn't have you know the point being like we all talk about we all jump on the foibles of others and the misdeeds of others and the mistakes others made. Again, I'm not talking about the degree of pedophilia. But I'm talking about, like, actions, things we've done wrong, you know, you know, things other people have done wrong. The guy was human, you know? The guy was a human being. And we all have things we've done that we're ashamed of. Uh, I admit it's certainly not the best sort of indicator of, of, of decency. I think it's so it's, it's hard for me to understand having, having spent all this time looking at his life the out-of-wedlock child is the one thing that's baffling to me. Not that he had an out-of-wedlock child, that he had no interest in seeing me out-of-wedlock child. Um, but I don't think it defines his entire life. I just don't. And I think he was a good man. I think he, he was so good to fans and so good to people. It such an ambassador. that, For me personally, when you're talking about a, it is a football award. You know, the Man New Year, it's the NFL Man of the Year is related to football to a certain degree, to a big degree. I do think it's, it's still rightly named. I really do.
2: You mentioned the Penn State scandal, and I just want to ask you a question not as the author of Sweetness for a second, but as a biographer. And the question is, is uh, you know, episode six of this program a long time ago, a guy named Joe Posnanski was kind enough to uh, come on this show, and we barely had anyone listening, and he's a, probably a big reason why we got the listeners that we do now. And he's in a, an unbelievable position where he was down there embedding himself, preparing for a biography about... About uh, Joe Paterno, can you put your, put yourself in his shoes for a second? What would you do if, when you were preparing your Walter Payton book, or maybe even your book about the Mets, and it came out that Doc Gooden was in a scandal like this or something like that? H- how do you react? Like, w- what would you do as a biographer? What and do you envy his position? Like, like, could you think of a worse thing?
0: I would. Uh, there's nobody I'd rather, I least rather rather be right now, as far as writers than Joe. Yeah. Um, i think it 's a horrible position to be in horrible, and I think you know people say almost like without thought ah there 's no you know all good is, all news is good news when it comes to or all pub is good pub when it comes to a book and like right you know and and I just think they were saying that to make me feel better you know, when the uh, Walter Payton when the negativity was swirling around, and i just don 't agree with it at all i really don 't and I think here you 're Joe and you you love. You're loving this book, and you're all about Joe Paterno. And this is a great thing, and you're, you're into it, and you're feeling it, and you're enjoying it, and, you know, you move to, you know, Happy Valley or whatever that it's called, and you just, you, you know, you you have these stories about Joe Paterno, and you know he's not a perfect man, but you, you know, you have this book, and it's going to be about this guy who's impacted the lives of so many. And then freaking a nuclear bomb drops on the whole thing. And that's really what's happened here. It's not that the book is dead. It's certainly not is that the book takes on an entirely different tone. And you can't just, you know, I, I, I was talking to my wife the other day about it, about literally about Joe's book. And she said, well, you, you can just add a chapter onto the end. But you can't. You can't just add a chapter on to the end. I mean, this is the biggest scandal in the history of college sports. And this is this is a Black Sox scandal big right here. I mean, this is enormous. And I would hate to be him. And the other thing is that that makes it difficult is like, you know, I think, I learned this from my Roger Clemens biography. I think people who wrote books about Tiger Woods, sort of sex and post-sex scandals, learn this. And I hope he doesn't learn it, but he might. Is people are very willing to pick up a newspaper, to go to ESPN.com or SI.com, and read about scandals. It doesn't necessarily mean five months later they're going to spend thirty dollars to read about it in a book. You know, it's different. Right. It's different asking someone to spend thirty dollars. And uh, I don't know how if you're the uh, publishing company. How you market that book right now? I, it doesn't mean it can't be marketed. I just actually I don't know how you market it. It's a toughie. It's really hard.
2: You know, as you said, that you can't just add a, a chapter in the end. Uh, I would support that. It almost feels like the whole thesis for the book has changed. You know the yeah. The, I don't
0: disagree. Yeah, I don't disagree. I don't know. I just don't know what you do. I mean, it's hard. It's really. I mean, I, I think every most authors probably struggle with this in their own books. I mean, you sit there and you're. It's like a big puzzle it 's like a jigsaw puzzle, and you're trying to fit this piece with that piece it's just you know you do all these interviews and it's, it's like a puzzle so now you have this puzzle figured out basically you you i'm sure he he was writing the book or whatever and he knew what he was doing, and he had this idea, and then you're just given two hundred more random pieces that you have to throw in somewhere and man i don't i don't know how you do it i'm mean, I'm sure he will he's an awesome writer he's a great guy, sure he'll figure it out, but that is a beast of a of a task right there
2: yeah it's almost like uh you know, if anyone is going to be able to do it, it's him. If he can't do it, it's it's almost like it's a it's a sign that no one would have been able to do it. But
0: uh, but well, wait, do you have a uh, have Steve Russian on your show?
2: He's on today. Yes,
0: Steve Russian could do it. Steve, Steve is Russian. my uh, ask Steve about how to do it. Steve is one of my all time favorites, and uh, I kind of feel like if anyone could could figure it out, he could.
2: I will ask him that. I want to ask you one last question about uh about Walter Payton before I let you go. One of the things that. And by the way, I I haven't reset, but we're talking to Jeff Perlman from the author of uh, the Walter Payton book, Sweetness. You can find his blog. It's www.jeffperlman.com. And he's on Twitter. He's at Jeff Perlman. Uh, One of the things that gave Walter Payton joy towards the end of his life was being a part of his son Jarrett's football career and uh, being a part of the recruitment process. And uh, obviously things for Jarrett maybe didn't work out quite as much as he had hoped. Do you think things would have been different for him as a football player if he didn't lose his father when he did?
0: Uh, no, I definitely do not. I think he was, uh, and I think he would agree to this. He was a, you know, very good college running back. Not a great college running back, but a very good college running back and not quite an NFL running back. And I think he would agree to that. I don't think he's he's never been like I could have been. Man, that guy, I'll tell you what, Jared Payton. One of the nicest human beings you ever meet in your life. Someone who his dad would really be proud of. Someone who carries with him his father in a very unique way. I've never seen him before quite like with Jared. I mean, he, he really feels a responsibility of sort of carrying on the legacy of his dad. It's very unique. Um, but I don't think, I think his, his career was about right. I think he was a, he was a borderline NFL player. I don't say that in a mean way. I mean, he was still 8,000 times better than most of us. Right. Uh, But a borderline NFL player who, you know, was kind of what he was.
2: One last question. Uh, Steve Jobs actually called up his biographer and said, you know, I want you to write this book about me. And uh, the legend goes that the biographer was skeptical, and then when he learned he was sick, he agreed to do it. Is there anyone out there in sports that you would take a phone call from that said... Hey man, I want you to write my biography, and you'd be real into it and down to do it.
0: <laughs> I never thought of it, uh, man. I, you know what? I would consider. Uh, I would love. You know what I do? I love Josh Hamilton. Mm. I love everything about the story of Josh Hamilton. If Josh Hamilton, I mean, he wrote a biography. But if Josh Hamilton called me tomorrow and said I really want to write another one and make it this and that, I would do it because I just have so much respect for his story and where he's coming from. Yeah, yeah, him I would do in a sec.
2: All right. Uh, It's Jeff Prohmann, the author of Sweetness, The Enigmatic Life of Walter Payton. Uh, You can find the book on Amazon.com. It's in all the digital formats that you like. It would make a great Christmas gift. I think I'm going to give one to my dad for Christmas. Uh, he's. Right. This is the perfect airline for him. It's better than a car, <laughs> and uh, yeah, much better than a card. And uh, we uh, are very appreciative to have him on again. You can find his blog www and at Jeff Proman. You mentioned on the blog the other day that you're in really, really early research for your next book. Is that something you're willing to divulge at all as to what that's No, about? you no. kidding me?
0: I'm the most paranoid freaking guy in the world i barely told my Peyton book before it came out you're gonna to have to wait on this one bud a sport <laughs> sorry say that again
2: will you give us a sport yeah it is a sport but that's all, <laughs> all right thank you very much for and being on the show the josh, it's
0: not the josh hamilton it's not
2: me. the josh hamilton book okay so we have the clues to work on our it's about a sport and it's not about josh hamilton
0: Exactly. Everything it's, uh, you can guess from there. Okay. Thanks, <laughs> thanks right, for man. being
2: on the show. I hope you enjoyed yourself. All right. All right. Take thank care. you. All right. Real quick book club update. Uh, thank you very much to Jeff Perlman and Sweetness. Probably one of our best book club books of the month. Nice to close that off with a. Powerful interview from the author, and thank you very much, Jeff Perlman for making that happen. Kind of a note about going forward. We couldn't get John Wertheim tonight because he's at Penn State. And Why? What's
3: going on there? <laughs>
2: he's uh, working on covering that story with SI. And I talked to him, and he said, I'll come on, and it'll be great because he'll be able to fill us in on what's going on there. Tell yeah. us about Blood in the Cage. So we're going to have him soon. Uh, We're not going to add a new book really right away. Uh, I think what we're going to do is in a week or two, we're going to have another book club update, which is basically going to be Don and I presenting our list of sports books that we think would make great holiday gifts. Okay. We did Uh, this on Father's Day. Yeah, we did it for Father's Day, and we'll do it again. Kind of a sportscaster's guide to what's out in the bookstore right now that would make a great gift for a friend or family for Father's Day. And then when January 1st comes and we've all opened our, our presents and had our books, we'll pick a new book club book of the month to read in January. But with the way things are going to get hectic with Christmas and all that, uh, I figured we'll take a quick break from the book club and uh, focus instead on uh, what books we'd like to buy for our friends and family. And then we'll come back to this uh, book club in January and start reading in the cold winter months. Sounds good. All right. One last thing to do today. We promised to give away a copy of the extra 2% to a Twitter follower who tweeted his top three favorite guests from last week. Don has a jug of the entries in it. (laughs) He's going to pick one out and hand it to me, and I will declare the winner. All right. And the winner is Strong Bad Forty Four at Strong Bad Forty Four. like the name. He ranked them Damashek, Carrie J. Byrne, Chirico. Wonder why he didn't like Chirico. Be interesting to find out. <laughs> but Strong Bad Forty Four is the winner of the contest today. Part of our Twelve Days of Christmas uh, promotion. Uh, next thing uh, we'll give away is a book, another baseball book. Uh, it, it was written by the Glenn Stout. The um, contributing editor of uh, the Best American Sports Writing series. And his book is about Fenway Park, and uh, specifically the first year of Fenway Park's existence. And uh, the book is called Fenway 1912. Uh, The author is Glenn Stout. Uh, You can find it's called The Birth of a Ballpark, a Championship Season, and Fenway's Remarkable First Year. So, Fenway 1912 is yours. If you want it, send me an email. Let me know you want it. Let me know who the three guests were today. And uh, all the correct answers will be put into a hat. And we'll pick one out next week. So if you're interested in the book, just send us an email. sportscasters at gmail.com to win a copy of Fenway 1912 by Glenn Stout. Let me know who the three guests were on the show today. And if there's more than one winner, we will pick the winner at random.
0: Pretty nice.
2: It look pretty nice that's, that's strong man <laughs> alright we'll be right back with Steve Russian our next guest is from Bloomington Minnesota and is a graduate of Marquette University in 1988 just two weeks after graduating from Marquette he joined the staff of Sports Illustrated. Within three years, at age 25, he became the youngest senior writer on the SI staff. In 1994, he spent four months writing an epic feature for SI's 40th anniversary issue. How We Got Here was a 24-page journey through sports and continues to be the longest story to appear in a single issue of SI. In 2006, he was named the National Sports Writer of the Year. In 2007, he briefly left the magazine before returning in 2010 as a contributor. He is a lifelong lover of palindromes. He has written numerous essays for the New York Times. He is the author of the 2010 novel Pint Man, a billiards guide titled Pool Cool, and two other books. Today he engaged occasionally contributes to golf digest and time magazine while living in connecticut with his wife and four children a warm sportscaster's welcome to the awesome and talented steve russian you're the second guy today and this rarely rarely happens whose intro exceeded his college's fight song
1: well uh, the college fight song i was impressed I, I was wondering where you found ring out ahoya well you know
2: uh, youtube <laughs> was where i found it and uh they made it nice and easy for me to find, so I appreciate that at YouTube. We've had some that we've had to really, really work hard to track down, but Marquette's was easy. Uh, but you and my uh, other guest today, Jeff Perlman, both uh, have out outrun your, your fight song.
1: Well, th- that means we need a shorter bio. Um, <laughs> you can you basically say, I have four kids. And in fact, as people have pointed out to me recently when I've spoken at places, they say, you know... In some places, your bio says you have four kids, and then your own website says your bio has three. Your bio says you have three kids, and um, I realize that uh, I'm not even updating my own my own bio now that I have four kids. The beauty of that is none of my kids knows which one of them I'm leaving out. So right,
2: right, <laughs> that's very true. Uh, my mom has three kids, and if if she ever pulled this two kids stuff, you know, I would think it was me right away, though.
1: Well, I think that's it's good though. That would keep you on your toes. It's probably good to know, um, you know, that mom might be cutting you out of the will. So,
2: <laughs> well, you know, we've been tracking you down for a while. Uh, you probably thought I was a little bit of a stalker, and that's okay. We, we, uh, we love Sports Illustrated, and many of our best guests over the year, over the year here have been Lee Jenkins and. Uh, John Wertheim and Peter King and, and all the great people that have worked at SI. So we knew we had to get you on because you're one of the names that I think of when I think of SI. Uh I'm a longtime subscriber. I always read your column and uh I remember how we got here. I remember reading it. And uh I guess it's just a goofy question to start. Do you when you get your when you get your newest edition, do you like thumb through at first and count the pages and make sure there's no twenty five page stories in there?
1: Uh, you know, I think the reason that that remains the longest story ever published in SI is because maybe they just they did it once and decided, you know what, we should probably never do this again. <laughs> we uh, um, once is probably enough. But um, you know, like you, I, I you know I, I grew up eagerly anticipating my issue and um, you know who was going to be on the cover and you know agreeing or disagreeing with that. I got a, a gift subscription for Christmas um, as a kid from my relatives in Cincinnati and, you know, got this silly notion in my head that, that I, I not only wanted to be a writer, but I wanted to be a sports writer, and I wanted to write for Sports Illustrated, and, you know, um, the notion that that, that that happened, looking back, was kind of naive, and, you know, I had no real safety net or anything. My parents encouraged me when I was in college at Marquette to, Know, maybe check out some of the campus interviews. I remember there, were, there was an oh, there was an interview for to sell Ricoh copiers, and uh, and I didn't. I kind of had all of my uh, chips on that, and the fact that it worked out is extraordinarily lucky. And um, I shudder to think. I mean, I'm not equipped to do anything else. So thank goodness it didn't come to that. But um, you know, so you know, I, I feel really blessed that I got to do what I, what I got to do, and uh, you know, still haven't had to work a day in my life. Let's talk about writing
2: and and the magazine and and kind of how things are changing for a couple minutes. You know, for a long time, I've been a subscriber to Sports Illustrated. I've been a subscriber to the Sporting News. Sports Illustrated has always given me these long form, well-researched pieces that I've been able to sink my teeth into. Sporting News has always been more about shorter things and coverage of all the teams instead of just a few teams. And it seems like Sporting News, the, the, the style of the magazine, hasn't been helped by the internet era. Because I think when I first got Sporting News, it was to fill the void, to get information about teams that I couldn't get information in Buffalo, New York about. But now I can get information about any team at any time on the internet. Whereas these long pieces in Sports Illustrated that are well-researched and give me insight, like Lee Jenkins wrote a piece on uh, Brandon Jennings or something like that, that that isn't as easy to just snap your fingers and find on the internet. And it seems like Sports Illustrated, uh, based on the internet and the way it's played into things, will survive longer than a magazine like Sporting News, which I think is down now to only printing issues once a month. What are your thoughts about the the two different magazines and the styles, and why do you think it is that Sports Illustrated maybe is emerging as the only real relevant sports magazine left?
1: Well, I think sports Illustrated's strength has always been longer more thoughtful pieces, partly um, you know turning a handicap into a strength, being a weekly magazine, you know coming out on a Wednesday at the earliest you know when I was in college, I'd give it on Thursday, sometimes you get it on friday um you know, in this Internet age, that's that's obviously a problem when people get their news in real time, but, you know, I think the magazine has always been best when they've turned that into a strength and said, okay, um, you know, this event happened this week, we're going to do a long, thoughtful piece on it, and we won't be first with the news, but we'll certainly have the best take and, and reporting on it. And, you know, you single up the sporting news, but um, I think that's affected everybody, uh, the entire field of journalism. It's, you know, killing off newspapers, and it's, um, you know, it's it's really just changing the entire media landscape. And uh, so I don't think anybody has escaped that problem. But, um, you know, SI as a weekly has had the resources for one thing to do it. Um, they've spent money to do it. It costs money to do this stuff. And, um, you know, and um, they haven't always you know they they've often tried to kind of be first with the uh, with the news stories and whatnot um the, the the unavoidable problem uh for the physical magazine itself is it goes to press on Monday night and comes out on wednesday so you can't always do that but um you know I think with ipads uh, you know ipad editions and and the web and everything else they can they can you know use those to to report breaking news while um you know, maintaining the long, thoughtful features in the magazine. That's always been what I've loved about about the magazine. I grew up reading Frank DeFord, and, you know, um, later, when I was older, Gary Smith and Rick Riley and, you know, longer pieces by those guys. And, you know, that's one of the things, one of the big things that really made me want to be a journalist and a sports writer. And, um, you know, before that, I'm old enough to have grown up in an age without the Internet my dad traveled all the time and he would bring home you know three-day old newspapers from LA or New York and I'd read Jim Murray or Red Smith and columns and um you know those daily deadline uh 800 word columns on you know news of the day were were every bit i mean as masterful as you know um, a lot of the you know six or seven thousand word pieces that I'd read in the magazine, and I, I remember specifically, you know, Jim Murray writing about Spokane, Washington. The trouble with Spokane is there's nothing to do there after ten in the morning, but it's a great place to have breakfast. I re- I remember reading that and thinking, you know, this is what I try to do around the dinner table: uh, make jokes about my four siblings and stuff, and try to get my mom to laugh and. You know, the thought that you could do that for a living was really an eye-opener to me.
2: You mentioned how in college you got your issue on a Thursday. I've always got mine on a Thursday. You also mentioned the iPad. Well, one of the great, great things about the iPad is that when I get home from the show tonight, I'm going to be pretty wired. I'm going to watch Parenthood on my DVR. I'm going to relax. And at midnight, exactly midnight, I'm going to be able to go on to my iPad and download the newest edition of sports illustrated and it's great. It, it almost feels like it's two days early um, this week. I'm particularly excited. I, I want to see what, what uh, John Wertheim is going to be writing about the Penn state issue or what the, how the magazine is going to cover that in general. And I love how sports illustrated looks on the iPad. Have you had a chance uh, to play with Sports Illustrated on the iPad and check it out. And what are your thoughts? Do you agree with me that it just kind of almost jumps off the thing and it almost feels like Sports Illustrated was made for the iPad in a way?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, we're talking about writing, but, um, you know, the, the photography of Sports Illustrated, as to me, has always been every bit as captivating and often more so than the writing. And, um, you know, uh, the fact that I was able to travel with, work with, become friends with a lot of these guys uh, has you know, really kind of uh, deepened that affection for what they do and, and and I think the stuff, yeah, it looks absolutely gorgeous on the iPad. And um I was one of those guys who not a, completely a Luddite, but who thought, you know, I like the feel of you know, a magazine, the feel of a newspaper, I like to carry it with me, you know, take it on the airplane, all this stuff and and I wasn't resistant to um to the iPad, but I re- do remember specifically my wife saying to me, "She got an iPad, or she wanted the one I got her one for her birthday." And and um, I remember her saying to me uh, once after she'd had it for a few months, "You know, would I want one?" And I and I said, and I quote, because she's quoted it back to me, "I don't need another screen to look at." <laughs> and uh, and anyway, at some point I picked up hers and started reading you know newspapers and magazines on it and uh she got me one then for my birthday and you know I I on that more often than I am on a on a you know a newspaper physical newspaper or magazine and uh, I still haven't read you know long books on the Kindle or an iPad I'm still enough of an old man to still be reading books but um but I, I love it. I'm a big English soccer fan, for instance. And, you know, to read European newspapers um, as they're published on, you know, what, what I remember trying to follow, you know, the English Premier League in the 90s from the United States. And, you know, you'd, you'd have to find like an International Herald Tribune with a three day old Arsenal Manchester United score. And, you know, now the fact that you can watch the games live on Fox Soccer or ESPN2 and read all the coverage online in real time is is mind-blowing and makes me feel like you know it's a real privilege to be living in this age as a uh, as a reader and a and a sports fan. Do you have the uh the newspaper's app? No, I don't I don't even have that. You know, I, uh, There's an I app. No, okay. I, I, I have some I have I have the the apps for some papers, you know, I have the right, New York Times right. app and I have um the Times of London app I'm actually paying you know, um, to to read these papers online. Um, you know, I feel like I want to be part of the solution, and the only way that journalism is going to survive is if people stop thinking of it as a free product and start paying for something that costs a lot of money to produce and is evidently seen as worthwhile by the people who read it or they wouldn't be reading it. I don't know how we came to this place where people thought that you know, this is the one product that uh, should be free. So, um, anyway, um, but yeah, I I love reading this stuff online, and uh, you know, and, and I've you know, I've had to sort of become a convert because initially I I didn't think I needed another screen to look at.
2: There's a great app that I just wanted to recommend to you because I think you'll love it. It's simply called Newspapers, and it's in the News section of the uh, App Store. And it has newspapers from all around the world. And I just, while you were talking, I, I was just curious and I looked and the United Kingdom looks like they have over 100 newspapers from the United Kingdom. So as long as the language barrier doesn't, you know, as long as you can, you, I'm not sure what language they print in over there, uh, you know, as compared to here. But as long as uh, you can you can read it, it'll, it should
1: work out. Um, I'll check it out. You know, most of the apps on my iPad, if you were to look at it right now, are uh math flashcards, decorating a cake. About fourteen hundred different ones that you can color with. Um, my kids have my iPad more often than I do and uh, you know, it's been a lifesaver on uh you know, when they're bored for an hour in the car or something, but uh but um, I'll check that one out. Jeff Prohman and I were speaking earlier, I don't
2: mean to name drop, but we got into a conversation about The unbelievable predicament that Joe Pisnansky is in right now, uh, being embedded for this whole year in State College to work on a biography about Joe Paterno and to have this basically thesis changing scandal dropped in his lap. And we were kind of talking about it, and you know, I was saying to Jeff that I thought, well, you know, maybe if anyone. If anyone can handle this, you know, Joe Poznansky might be the guy. Well, he said to me that he thinks if anyone could handle it, you would be the guy. And he told me to ask you what you would do if you were in Joe Piznansky's shoes right now. So this is more of a question that I'm asking on behalf of Jeff Perlman than I myself. But I think we're both curious, as uh, it was an interesting conversation, but I think we're both curious as to how you would handle a situation where you're embedded in a city, you're following a coach, for the first four or five months, the story is one thing, and then all of a sudden, this thesis-changing scandal—maybe the greatest scandal in the hist- history of college sports—is just dropped in your lap.
1: Well, first of all, I mean, I don't really have any specific knowledge of, of Joe's situation beyond what you know what he's written about it. But um, you know, uh, as somebody who's fifty thousand words into an eighty thousand word book right now that's due in the spring, um, the notion of Starting over at this point, and that's a constant fear. You know, geez, my hard drive, my zip drive, my hard copy—all of this stuff somehow disappears. You know, um, is is uh, you know unthinkable. I mean, uh, the thought uh, of—it's such a depressing thought for a writer who's, you know, in mid-book. The notion of starting over. So, but um, you know, uh, the. The silver lining. I mean, there's there's no silver lining in the in the Penn State story, obviously. But from a writer's perspective, the the um, the notion of changing your entire view on your 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 world view of quote unquote Happy Valley um, is that it's the biggest story in in the nation at the moment, and um, and he's there witnessing it firsthand and getting. You know, firsthand reaction, and has all of the um, context of the previous months that he's been there, and all of the previous interviews that he's done. Um, The fact that it's presumably 180 degrees from what he thought it was going to be, um, I have to assume means, you know, starting now with, uh, you know, whatever your Whatever your first chapter was before, it's obviously very different now. Yeah. But uh, you know, I think it doesn't change Joe Paterno's entire life story up until this point. Certainly, there's a lot we don't know, but um, but I think it's uh, it certainly changes everyone's perception of, of Paterno, and um, you know, I for one and kind of curious as to, um, you know, I didn't pay much attention to Paterno for, for uh, 50 of his years at, at Penn State, beyond, you know, knowing this guy was racking up wins and not racking up NCAA violations and all that. Um, never interviewed him, never met him, and, uh, you know, I'm curious, uh, as a writer, it just means a hell of a lot more work obviously and rewriting and re reporting and you know, interviewing people all over again in the context of all that's happened. But uh you know, it's that's a daunting task and um but you know you have the you have the knowledge that at the end of the undertaking people will be interested in what you have to say. Uh a lot of books that people write Nobody's nobody's waiting for them when they come out, you know. As as I heard some writers say about on the eve of their book release, this is the calm before the calm, you know. So he <laughs> uh, won't have that to worry about anyway. The
2: sportscasters are here with Steve Rushin. He has a wonderful website, com where you can even watch a watch an interview with him as he was promoting his. Uh, novel, which I mentioned before, Pint Man. You can also follow him on Twitter. He is at Steve Russian, R U S H I N. I wanted to ask you about Twitter. You know, I had Jane Levy on, and she said that there's absolutely nothing meaningful uh, a true writer can say in 140 characters or less, and she refuses to go on it. But you're a writer, as many others have, who have embraced Twitter and have uh, become a part of the community. How do you like it? How has it changed what you do? And what do you think is valuable? valuable about it? And what do you think, you know, you don't like about it?
1: Well, I I would say to Jane Levy's point, I don't, I'm on Twitter, but I don't, I don't write anything meaningful on Twitter. I'm not sure I've read anything terribly meaningful on Twitter. I've seen people link to things on Twitter that then I've read and I might not have read otherwise, but, uh, but I treat it almost entirely as a not serious uh, medium. And that's just my personal Choice, um, you know. I, um, you know, when the whole Paterno scandal was, or I shouldn't say the Paterno scandal, when the whole Penn State scandal was breaking, and uh, you know, I, I haven't mentioned that. It, it, to me, it trivializes, you know, serious issues. Um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of. Uh, well, there's, there's, I mean. There, There's no context, there's no nuance, there's no subtlety, there's nothing, it's not a medium in which you can say much of any meaning Um, beyond little fortune cookie uh, aphorisms, and that's all that I put on there are jokey lists and things like that, but I do enjoy it. I mean, I, um, you know, I, you know, in a couple of years on it, I've probably tweeted a thousand times or something, so it's not like I'm on it. A ton, but um, you know, it's just one more thing that, if it gets people to, you know, read—and I don't mean read your 140-character thing—but as I say, so much of it is links to large, longer pieces uh, that I might, I might not have otherwise seen. Um, you know, then it's great. I think people make a big mistake if they think they're, you know, doing something important by tweeting, or if they think that uh, they're you know, 140-character sentence as somehow journalism or something. But uh, as a completely trivial, fun, kind of jokey thing, you know, I kind of enjoy it.
2: I'm thinking of two particular times where I thought Twitter was kind of at its best, and I'm wondering if you've ever used it for this example. But when baseball had its great night, uh, the last night of the regular season, and then again it was a baseball example Uh, game six of the previous World Series that just finished, it it seemed like I was really interested in picking up my iPad and kind of turning Twitter on during those couple of hours of play and just kind of watching it with all of the people on my timeline, the writers across the nation that were watching and covering it, the fans that were on there. It seems like Twitter is a great it's it's almost like a way to have thirty people over without having your wife upset that they're going to wake the kids or or you know, th- you know three hundred people. And I don't know if you have ever used it for an yeah experience absolutely. Like that.
1: Forget my previous answer. You're absolutely right. That's a much more insightful and um, better synopsis of Twitter than what I just said. It is it is kind of a jokey and light and trivial in my estimation. And and I don't like engaging serious topics on it because I think it trivializes them. But you're absolutely right for a communal experience. You know watching watching that final game of the regular season of baseball was, you know, knowing that you know, I can talk on the phone to my dad in Florida who's watching it, I can talk on the phone to a buddy of mine in Minneapolis who's watching it. But you can then then go on Twitter and just put in, you know, uh Tampa Bay, Boston or you know, Yankees or something, and see kind of all of America well not really all of America, but all the people who are watching baseball and are on our Twitter watching it and it becomes more of a this kind of communal experience and, um, and you're right, I do. I have done that before with big events and, um, and it's fun. It's interesting to see, you know, what everybody's talking about as it's happening and then almost always with those things, as soon as that game, that event is over, that State of the Union address is over or the Oscars are over or whatever it is that people are watching um, you know, then people completely move on to something else and kind of yeah. break up into little tiny groups again. And, um, but yeah, absolutely, when, when people are gathered around that kind of national fireplace for, uh, for an hour or two, it is, it's a great tool for seeing what's going on uh, in a situation like that. It's a great, you're absolutely right. And
2: you have 1,110 tweets.
1: 1,110? 1, yes. Wow, one more and I've got uh, a palindrome. <laughs> exactly. I should, have, I should have done my eleven eleventh <laughs> tweet on eleven eleven.
2: Oh man, you missed out. What, on what a missed opportunity! There. There.
1: The world is poorer for my not having done that.
2: Oh man, uh, when Steve Jobs passed away, I had the opportunity to kind of relive his wonderful uh, commencement address that he did at, I believe, Stanford. I hope that's right. Yep. Uh, a bunch of times they've shown clips of it over and over again, and uh, you are someone who's been lucky enough to be honored with. The chance to speak to a college on commencement. Tell me a little bit about that experience. What it meant to you. What it was like, and uh, how you feel it ranks amongst all of these great experiences you've had in your wonderful career.
1: Uh, it, it ranks high up there. I was really privileged and felt honored and blessed to be asked to give the commencement address at Marquette in 2007. It's my alma mater. Um, you know, it, it. I remember distinctly my the day I graduated and uh, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, William Rehnquist, gave our commencement address. And I can't say I was entirely interested in hearing him or even in getting my diploma because that was the day that uh, Celtics and Hawks, and I was a huge Celtics fan as a kid, were, were playing in the NBA playoffs. And Larry Bird and Dominique Wilkins had an epic fourth quarter shootout that Ranks as one of the greatest in NBA history, and I was watching that and had to abandon the second half to go uh, <laughs> and and witnessing this unbelievable fourth quarter and go hear my, you know, Judge Rehnquist give the commencement address. So, uh, so I mentioned that in my when I gave the commencement address, knowing that these kids would not necessarily be hanging on my every word and just want to collect their diploma and go uh, celebrate with their families and stuff, but. Uh, but uh it was it was a great day. It was, you know, in the Bradley Center, where Marquette and the Milwaukee Bucks play and um it was uh you know, it was just it was just cool. People seemed to enjoy it. You know, I tried to keep it light and who am I to give them advice? I'm certainly not Steve Jobs, you know, at the time I was Steve Jobless, so <laughs> um you know, but uh it seemed to go down well and um, you know it was it was you know and my family was there the night before commencement we went to the brewers twins game and i grew up in minnesota as a twins fan and uh you know they don't get to play each other often anymore except in league. and um, and uh yeah, that was pretty cool too so isn't it cool how we just
2: kind of arrange our lives around sports in a way you know like hey i'm going to this commencement address i wonder
1: what sporting event is uh going to be around i'd love well, to well you know i had in. I have Two brothers in Chicago. They came up from Chicago. I have uh, brother and sister, and my father in Minneapolis, and so Milwaukee was kind of, you know, conveniently placed in between those two places, and uh, and they're all sports nuts. And um, you know, uh, this is what I remember probably most from that weekend, including the commencement address that night, the Twins Brewers game. Um, it was it was it was a Saturday evening game, and. You know, which was is bad between those two teams because people had been drinking all day, <laughs> and uh, you know they've been like an eight-hour tailgate, and uh, and so uh, that night at the game, um, this this guy in a uh, Johan Santana Twins jersey, this was 2007, uh, he got sick. He was obviously oh, no. bombed, and he uh, and security came up to cart him out, and as they were taking him away all the Twins fans in the section that I was sitting in, I was not among them, but stood up and started chanting, Cy Young, Cy si Young, Cy si <laughs> Young. And, uh, and uh, it was, uh, for some reason, that's, that's my most vivid memory of, of the weekend, as, um, you know, Johan Santana getting sick in the aisle at, at Miller Park. So,
2: Well, besides being fellow Steves and... Having love for Sports Illustrated and sports journalism, you have a brother. I believe his name is Jim. I hope I'm right about that. Who played right. D1 hockey at Providence? Yep. Played in the Frozen Four. Well, I have a younger brother named Anthony who is playing his freshman year of D1 hockey at Yale. Wow. And um, I was thinking about that when uh, I was doing research when I saw about your brother at Providence, and I also stumbled upon a little anecdote that you had. Ca- you went back to Minnesota. Uh, to cover the first time that the North Stars had played in the Stanley Cup, and uh, you were a little taken back by how crowded uh, the, the arena was. And I guess I'm just curious because I'm in Buffalo, New York, and we're a hockey rabid city, sure. and uh, we love we talk hockey on the podcast as much as we can. Are, do you consider yourself a hockey fan? Will you watch more hockey this year with the NBA uh, not around? And um, you know, where, where do you stand as a, as a NHL fan, if you are uh,
1: want. I, I am a hockey fan i i, I don't I'm not going to pretend that I watch a lot of it, um, particularly during the regular season. I love the NHL playoffs. I also have my youngest brother, John, who lives in Chicago, not far from my brother Jim. Uh, Jim played at Providence, as you mentioned, for Lou Lamarillo and uh, and Lou Lamarillo still to this day says he was the best face off man he ever had. And uh, my little brother John was drafted by the Rangers out of high school, and ended up playing hockey at Notre Dame. Wow! And uh, yeah, so I came from a hockey family in, in Minnesota, and uh, and uh, you know I I covered it for a little bit at SI. My first year there, I uh, I my first story I ever did. This it, it wasn't even a story. I was just sending a file to. Um, to Austin Murphy, who was going to write it the story, but I, I traveled with the Rangers to Edmonton and then on to Denver during the exhibition season to, to you know, do some reporting on a Guy Lafleur story. gila Lafleur was coming back to the NHL. And, um, you know, so it was a great thrill in those days to go to, like, the Montreal Forum was still in existence and um, the old Boston Garden and all that. Um, uh, but I, And I don't watch it the regular season all that much now, and I kind of get, really get into it in the NHL playoffs. But, yeah, it's a great sport. It's a great sport in Minnesota where you've got high school hockey is huge. You know, the, the Gophers play in this gorgeous Mariucci Arena. Um, you know, I haven't even been to a wild game. Um, but, uh, you know, it, I have a lot of affection for hockey, and now my kids – who are young? I've got four, six, and under. Are just starting to take the two older ones are just starting to take, a skating lessons. And we've got a, you know, a big rink, ten minutes from our house, uh, two sheets of ice. And um, you know, I take them over there for open skating a lot now. And um, and you know, in the last couple of years, it's kind of re-energized. My love of hockey, and you know, when that moment when you take the skates off and you feel like you're three inches shorter, yeah. you put them on, you suddenly feel it. You know, I'm six five as it is. But, you know, I'm six eight out there on the ice. It, it's, it's, um, you know, I'd forgotten kind of how all that stuff felt, and now to relive it through my kids and, and, uh, you know, see all the puck marks on the ceiling of this place, and, you know, all the rink rats who are eight years old carrying their their smelly hockey bags and all that. Um, it's kind of gotten me back into it. And, you know, being in New England here and the Bruins run last year, suddenly every hockey fan was coming out of the woodwork. And I'm not ashamed to say that I was one of them. Well, they say Minnesota is hockey. Uh,
2: My brother played in USHL with a kid named Sam Coda, who was from Minnesota, who uh, held a couple of records that his younger brother is now breaking in Minnesota high school hockey. Uh, he is at Union right now. My brother, as I said, is at Yale. And the greatest player to ever play hockey at the University of Minnesota, arguably, Thomas Vanek, is uh, tearing stuff up here in Buffalo. So lots of connections between Buffalo yeah. and Minnesota hockey.
1: Uh, I'll give you one more just with your brother. Um, uh, at Yale, um, I have the, the pleasure and the slightly... Uh, it's a bad way to measure your life of having been born on the same day september 22nd 1966 as mike richter. Oh. And so uh, every time i thought i was doing not too bad, you know, richter was winning the stanley cup or something. It's uh, it's hard to measure your life uh against somebody born on the exact same day and and i i i wrote about that once and talked to richter about it and he kind of got a kick out of it at the time. You know, he was uh he had retired from a long fruitful um, um, highly paid career in the nhl and was now a graduate student and hockey coach at yale while uh you know it's kind of hard to uh hard to measure up to that for most people
2: well i was born on the same day but not year as minnesota north star's forward brian bellows and i was always very proud of that until a couple years ago when a video went viral that kind of have you ever seen this video of the penguins picking on brian bellows
1: i have not seen that
2: later google you know penguins brian bellows and you'll see it and you'll see why my smile turned into a frown i'll
1: do that i could do Um, this he still lives in the same you know area more or less where uh where my family lives in in the twin cities and um two years ago i went back for the uh national pond hockey championships that they now have on the on the lakes there, and uh, if I remember correctly, he was participating with a bunch of other NHL guys who have stayed in the Twin Cities.
2: Pretty cool. I could do this literally all day. It was a delight to have you on the show. I don't want to push it. Uh, thank you for being on again. steveRussian.com at Steve Russian on Twitter uh, for some jokes there um his novel which would make a great christmas gift i think is called pint man it's in paperback as as well as uh, i noticed is available in all of the the popular digital forms you can get it on the kindle uh it's in the ibook store and i also saw it uh, for the nook as well so plenty of uh, ways to have a russian christmas uh thank you very much for your time i really appreciate it now you're in connecticut how far are you from new haven
1: about an hour from New Haven. Yeah. Um, I get down there uh, occasionally. Um, most pressingly, the the Connecticut chapter, Connecticut's Arsenal Supporters uh, Club, meets oh. at one bar or another in New Haven, and, and I'm a big Arsenal fan. I mentioned I was an English soccer yeah. fan. Uh, Arsenal are the team that I follow. So,
2: All right, well, go Arsenal. And maybe I will uh, coordinate with email, but uh, maybe someday I can uh, meet you down there at a Yale game and... Uh, we could uh talk some more but um you're you're more than welcome to to uh bring your kids or whatever and my brother will cook us up with some tickets but uh maybe that's something for the future uh if not we'd love to have you on again and thank you very much for your time today i really appreciated it that
1: was great steve i enjoyed it thank you
2: thank you have a nice night
1: you too
2: See it's time for a new segment we've created called five on fantasy With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Stephen Jackson, Miles Austin, Leon Lett, Ocho Cinco, TJ Cushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. (laughs) I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. Huge thanks to Steve Russian for joining us on the show today. That was fantastic. I really uh, enjoyed that. hope you enjoyed it as well. All right. We are going to hustle through five on fantasy a little bit today. Um, first, we're going to go through just a couple of little things. First thing I wanted to say is that fantasy hockey is very hard. Yes, it is. Uh, we mentioned a while ago that we did a fantasy hockey league, and I just want to tell you what my struggles have been. We're in a league where you start three forwards, two defensemen, a goalie, and a utility. It's daily. You can change your lineup every day. There's, what, 10 or 15 categories or whatever, and you the goal is to try to be the best in as many categories as you can, and that's how the game is scored. If you win a category, you get a point. Well, it's really hard to improve your team when you draft a team and the players that you draft to be good aren't good. Right, Like, so, i in the first three rounds, I drafted Bobby Ryan, Pavel Datsuk, and Eric Stahl. Eric Stahl's a minus seventeen right now oh. he 's been horrible, but what do you do to improve your team? Do you drop Eric Stahl first of all you can 't probably can 't right and that 's another thing i 'm going to talk about but if you could is that is that, i mean how do you improve your team in fantasy
3: hockey uh we 've talked in the past when we briefly touched on fantasy hockey before. My problem with it is always this specifically in the league we're in. And I'm having some fun with it, I suppose. And it's not a big-money league or anything, so I'm not going to complain or anything. But having a forward position is too generic because everybody has good players. And like you said, do you drop a guy uh, like Stahl to pick up – like I picked up Ryan Smith because he had a hot start. but that's, I picked up Milan Mahalik. Right. And fantasy hockey seems to be all about hitting guys on streaks. Football, you want a guy that's consistent. Like You might rather have Adrian Peterson this year for the consistent 15 to 20 points he's going to give you than an Arian Foster who sat games injured but maybe has given you bigger big games. Hockey, since it's week to week, is all about just finding guys on those little hot streaks. And like I said, without specific positions, everybody has good forwards. And if I could change one thing about our league, it would be that there would be just a little bit of a deeper bench.
2: So, that you could play with your roster a little bit, try right. to find these guys on a hot streak. As
3: it is, there's not a lot of room to maneuver. There's only one spot for injured players, and there's always injuries in hockey. And IR in hockey only means you're going to be out for, what, a week or something like that? Right. So, there's only one IR spot. I know I have guys, like I've got Ryan Miller, I had Jeff Carter, I had uh, Chris Pronger who had the eye injury. We talk a lot about hockey on this show, so I'm sure we have a lot
2: of hockey listeners, and I'm sure a lot of our hockey listeners have more experience than I do at Fantasy Hockey. Email me, thesportscasters at tell me Defend it. T- tell me how <laughs> Fantasy Hockey is played best, and tell me what I can
3: do to make my team better. To me, it reminds me a lot of Fantasy Baseball, but with Fantasy Baseball, it feels like the – the decisions are less of guessing. Like you're going to start a good pitcher and you know he's going to do well. Most cases where in hockey, it's hard to tell if a guy is going to go out and score a goal or two or be a minus three, like you said, with Stahl. with this huge minus. All right. you want to update the listener league? Uh, we'll
2: do that last. I have one other real quick thing. Okay. Um, I've been thinking out loud recently, do we need do not drop lists in fantasy sports? Yeah, I you, see why the purpose is there, but isn't this something we can police on our own? Right. It's.
3: I, it seems like it's in position to protect the league from itself and collusion and just but mistakes. They don't update maybe update them.
2: They only seem to update them with injuries. Oh, really? Yeah. Like Felix Jones is on the do not drop list in Yahoo Fantasy Football really? right now.
3: Chris Johnson probably would have been all year. Yep. You hmm. shouldn't be able to drop Chris uh, Felix Jones right now. I. I think he's he might be real-life droppable if you're the Cowboys because of how well the Murrays played. Yeah, I was going to say at first it's never come to a point where it bothered me, but I assumed, I guess, that leagues kept up with it a little better than that. Like you said, Felix Jones has no business being on there.
2: When I ran into a situation in the Fantasy Hockey League where I had a, I had Carey Price, who was 5-5 five and five to start the season. He was on the do-not-drop list. There was a goalie, Nikolai Habiboulin, who started the season like seven and zero? Oh, right. And I
3: couldn't make that switch. Goalies should never be undroppable. I mean, they're just Tim Thomas wins the Vesna one year, is the backup the next year, wins the Vesna the next. I mean, what do you do with that? He's probably undroppable this year. And then too. in
2: the two days that it took for the commissioner to make a decision, which I understood because I was asking, can I make a move? I mean, he had a he had to consider the fairness of the league when we signed up we signed up with the do not drop list in mind. So I don't blame him at all. But in the time that it took to get
3: permission, the goalie was gone. Uh, So I just, I just kept him. But so to answer your question in short, no, I don't mind them, but I think, I guess I wasn't aware of how little they're updated it in hockey. Like you said, it, it amplifies the problem a little bit. So if they were updated more with realist, realistic, uh, intentions and stats then i wouldn't mind it but yeah I, I see your trouble with it you had some injuries you wanted to mention real quick yeah matt schaub like we mentioned off the top out for the season nosha moreno out for the season uh michael vick has broken ribs we talked about how many players off the bat Willis McGahey was also injured in that nosha moreno i think he's Broncos more of a game day-to-day. but he should
2: be available this week i guess right
3: so yeah, they play early though. Watch your injuries they play this week, Thursday. and remember that it's the last bye week. For strangely, there was a bye week. Four skipped. teams are on a bye. Yeah, it's Houston, New Orleans, Indianapolis, Indianapolis, and uh, the fourth team. The fourth team. Yeah, I'm not sure who it is, but Pittsburgh. That's right, Pittsburgh. So keep an eye on your buys. Don't forget that there's. It's the last week for them. Okay, starts
2: and sits. My starts last week. I had. Mark Sanchez at quarterback. He had 306 yards, one TD, two interceptions. He also had 11 yards rushing and a TD. So he had a, a decent day for you. My running back was Willis McGahee, who unfortunately got injured real early in the game. Uh, he had four y- four rushes for 17 yards when he left the game. Was averaging over four yards a carry, and his team went on to rush for 255 yards in the game. Yeah, we definitely so that's a, definitely
3: a we, tough y- luck. You call them, Injury I think, uh, there. like a number one fantasy player for the rest of the season so yeah that was that was a tough injury
2: yeah and then my wide receiver start was lauren robinson that worked out he had
3: three yeah. catches for 73 yards and two, two touchdowns TDs, yep. my sits were brutal so uh hopefully nobody took my advice this week as far as tom brady who was my first sit i thought the jets would come out and they actually played pretty well i think the game was 16 to 9 for a long time before brady and gronkowski just broke it open But brady ended the game with over 300 yards and three tds Steve suggested that I claim that uh, what I meant to say was Brady's rushing yards were going to be lousy, right. and I think he ran for two yards. Yeah, so. three carries, two yards. So that so, was terrible. Yeah, that, w- that would have been a good call on my part. Cedric Benson, I was right about. I know he's, that's maybe not the ballsiest of picks because he's not great, but he has averaged around 80 to 90 yards a game. This game he only put up about 60 in one catch. And Larry and Fitzgerald. Just one thing to keep in mind there, Bernard Scott had a much higher yards per carry average.
2: He didn't have more yards because he had much less carries, but his average is higher, so which from Couple somebody that's more that, stinkers from, from Benson, he's gotta be careful. Right.
3: Since this is the fantasy segment, we won't talk about re- like I don't watch the Bengals, I'm not gonna claim to, but it always seems like Bernard Scott was just the shiftier player. Benson was just the uh prototypical, what do they call it? Three yards and a cloud of dust type guy. Mm-hmm. He runs straight ahead. Whereas Scott seems a little more shifty and uh, a little more of a breakout threat. So that might make the... Something to think about. Right. Yeah. And Larry Fitzgerald, wow, was I off there. Uh, I thought the Eagles would show a little and more. And where was Namdi right. I have no idea. Uh, the best corner in that game was Peterson, Patrick Peterson. So hopefully I will redeem myself this week. Start us off. My first sit this week is Michael Vick. Uh, I know he's... Part of my fear is if he does play, which I believe he will, is that he won't make it through the game. The Giants hit quarterbacks. It's yeah, what they're they known do. for. Yes, it's they what do. they've been known for f- since they won the Super Bowl. And their defense in general just is pretty good. They they might be one of the hottest teams in the league right now, so I don't love Vic in that matchup, especially with how poorly the Eagles played last week. All right. My
2: start at quarterback is Phillip Rivers. I checked. Phillip Rivers is 11th right now among quarterbacks. So in a 10-team league, he's essentially the first backup. Right, And he struggled a bit recently, so there's plenty of reason to be down about him. But he has a good matchup this week. He plays the Bears. They're 29th against the pass. Um, They're a desperate team. So you would think that if there's ever going to be a week where they're going to play for their lives, this would be it. Luckily for them, they're in a shortest division, so they could probably even afford two losses in a row more and still be in it. But I like Phillip Rivers this week. Good matchup against
3: the Bears, who have been bad against the pass. My sit this week is a gutsier call again. uh, Chances are you're not able to sit him, but Ray Rice is playing uh, at home against Cincinnati. The Ravens' offense has been kind of anemic for quite a while now, and Ray Rice has been solid throughout. But the Bengals, as bad as they've been and the reputation they have, they've been very good this year. And they're actually the number two rushing defense. If you have a team that maybe you drafted uh, Ray Rice in the first round, Matt Forte in the second round, and then picked up a guy like DeMarco Murray, Rice might be on my bench this week. Ballsy. Yeah.
2: All right. My running back start is Reggie Bush. Reggie Bush is a guy who seems to have found it suddenly for right now. I don't know how long this will last. He's shown flashes before, but he's hot right now. Uh, He plays the Bills this week. They're 21st against the run. They were gashed by DeMarco Murray last week. DeMarco Murray, somewhat similar to Reggie Bush. Murray's bigger and stronger, but... Shifty catches the ball right. in the backfield. Bush that is probably faster and better catcher. So, so he, I like Reggie Bush this week. It's a great matchup. In Bush's last three games, he scored 13, 21, and 18 fantasy points. No reason he can't, he
3: can't be in that range again this week against the Bills. So if you got him, start him. My last one this week is Dwayne Bowe. Uh, this might even be too obvious, but if Matt Castle were healthy, the Patriots don't scare anybody as far as their pass defense goes. So Julian this, Edelman was on the field last week. As a Oh, a corner. Defender, yes. Right. <laughs> so right. The Patriots aren't scaring anybody in their secondary. Dwayne Bow is a nice big big target that uh Castle always seems to look for. That said Matt is gonna be out this game, and I think he might potentially be out for the year too. So yeah, I don't like Dwayne Bow at all this week against New England. I think uh New England might just trounce Kansas City. They were a team that was looking up, 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 up. Like, all of a sudden, they found themselves in first place or tied for first in their division after going 0-3 to start the season and looking bad doing it, and now they're going back to looking bad. Yep, then that Dolphins game happened Yeah. all downhill uh. from there. My start
2: at wide receiver is Jordy Nelson. Sometimes it's hard to know who to start in the Packers' offense because there's so many weapons. The Saints are like this too, but the Bucks are 28th against the pass. Nelson seems to be the ho- one of the hottest receivers in the league. Yeah. Um, and he's a guy that maybe you've thought about. He's, he, he's probably the classic matchup guy, that you start him when the matchup is great and you maybe don't start him when the matchup isn't great because you're worried he's just not going to get the touches. I'm not worried about it at all. Um, he played a great game last night on Monday Night Football, and I, can, I figure he'll do just great against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers this week as well. All right, last thing for five on fantasy today is just a quick update of the fantasy league uh Don was very impolite to our buddy at Penn State uh pounding him 170 to 128 poor guy didn't even have a coach and you're <laughs> doing that to him uh Pittsburgh the Pittsburgh feelers got back on the right track after starting off six and0 then losing three straight games Pittsburgh feelers won in the Don division they're seven and three. Uh, we are Penn State and Don Lake Sports are tied um, for second place. And what you're talking about, Hillis is one game out of a playoff spot. There, in my division, I lost a battle for first place against Gordon Fishsticks, uh, who now has a two-game lead on me. Uh, I am in second place at five and five. Uh, Nova Scotia Nellers are four and six, and one game out of first place at three and seven are the out of third place but a playoff spot right uh, the cardiac cardiac cats and manning up
3: yeah so no one in this no th- one's no out. One in
2: the league is out of it Yeah. no one's out so uh it's, a, it's an exciting league it's been all, all year and uh since we haven't been great about getting everyone on maybe we'll do like a big league round table at the end talk about what worked or whatnot but we're gonna figure out a way to make it up to everyone sounds good all right that's it for five on fantasy we're gonna be right back with our buddy sooner zach Our next guest is a graduate of the University of Oklahoma and is calling us from Los Angeles, California. He has long been a person that this podcast has held close to our hearts, and he has been in the basement for quite a while, uh, starting a new life for himself in California, changing jobs a little bit. But he is back with us today to talk college football and update us on all things that are going on in the world of Zach Rosenfield. Welcome back to the SportsCatters, Sportscasters. Sportscasters. Oh. Zach, how are you, <laughs> Do you doing? Remember today? the name of your show? No, I f- <laughs> forgot. Too Trips many episodes. Of of that.
4: You want to try that again?
2: Sportscasters. All right. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, the Sportscasters. Welcome. How are you?
4: Oh, I couldn't be happier to be back, boys.
2: What is up? How you been? You you got a new life out there in California. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? I mean, what are you doing now?
4: Well, uh, I run a sports uh, PR firm, and uh, that has been a lot of fun. I uh, have been making a lot of money on Oklahoma State. My wife is still extremely attractive. I have a (laughs) 14-month-old kid who is now uh, saying a few words and walking around the house and getting me up very early. And uh, I still can't grow a beard, battling a little uh, weight gain, and um, that's really about it.
2: You've also first of all, I've been following you on Twitter, well, I've always followed you on Twitter, but recently you've been showing off pictures of the Playboy Wi Fi and you've been rubbing elbows with people from KISS and mm-hmm. porn stars like your Rob Gronkowski. <laughs> what's all this what's all that about? Are you getting like your spot in the celebrity life out there or what?
4: Oh, yeah, 100%. I'm I'm basically the Rob Gronkowski of uh, my household. Um, I look like him, too. Don't yeah, like
2: cut like him, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
4: um, I will tell you this. Um, in life, certain things, uh, certain times, the stories make for better. better. In certain times in life, the stories are better than the experience. And uh, I would say that it's applicable to uh, my time at the Playboy Mansion, which could also be known, the uh, House of Broken Souls.
3: Oh, mm. That's terrible. You're wrecking a lot of dreams here. <laughs> <laughs> that's
4: all right. You know, we got to have fantasies, right? I mean, look, you, you know, I'm not. You know, you could choose not to believe me. I mean, I may be completely uh, wrong here and just throwing you, you know, taking you off the scent.
3: Because your wife's a listener. Yeah, of course. Okay. All right. <laughs> right. Yeah,
4: that's.
2: She's one of our best. Yeah, one of our best listeners. And we wouldn't want her to f- to find out the hard way that uh, Zach is enjoying himself at the Playboy Mansion. So, all right. Well, one thing that no matter what. Your job is, you will always be an expert on, is college football. And it seems like we were kind of – it was a boring season for a little while. Everyone was blowing everyone out. There was a lot of undefeated teams. The teams that were supposed to win were winning. The non-conference schedule this year wasn't great. And then Oklahoma loses to Texas Tech. And since then, it seems like it's been on, like – you know, there's been upsets and great. Game. It just seems like college football season started with that Oklahoma loss in some strange way. What have you been? What have you been? Your thoughts on the season in a general sense?
4: I think it's been a uh, you know pretty uncompelling season. I think college football once again tried to make the mistake that my grandpa used to do when he played golf and filling out his scorecard before he even teed off. And <laughs> uh, I, I think college football has really tried to. Uh, hold on to that and we're getting into uh the soup in the nuts of the season. We're realizing that how can you really vote Andrew Luck to Heisman when he got worked at home by you know Oregon coming off a so so performance two weeks prior against USC and, you know, Trent Richardson is the greatest running back ever, except if you take a look at his historical numbers, he gets uh bad as you know, he decreases his value as the season goes on. This case is uh this season is no exception and he did them no favors when they played L S U. So you find a lot of what's happening in college football in the world where you can really kind of set up the table to be how you want. Uh, You know, the the house of cards is crumbling. And, you know, guys like me who, when we have free time, who spent some time trying to really understand the inner workings and the fabric of how it works, trying to figure out how this thing is going to play out. And, you know, it's not very rarely do you have the situations where Vince Young's Texas gets to play Matt Leinert, um, you know, USC or last year when we got, you know, what was a great, pre, you know, pregame matchup, Auburn and in Oregon, you know, several years ago, the year that LSU got in with two losses, everybody collapsed late. And it's not uh, entirely uh, wrong to think that that won't happen again this year.
2: Yeah. And, you know, there's still plenty of room for, upset. Uh, LSU still has to play a top 10 team in Arkansas. Um, Teams are going to lose. What's your feeling as we keep going? Are we going to have a rematch of some game in the National Championship game? Do you think we're going to have one loss team? I'll tell
4: you this flat out. I don't mean to interrupt. I'll just come right at it and and save you the time. There will not be a rematch of the SEC versus uh, the SEC in the National Championship game. It's uh, I don't want to say that it's mathematically impossible, but the way the BCS formula is set up, and I could absolutely numb your brains uh, and explain and lay this out for you, not try to do so in a uh, very concise, you know, short way. But there's really not an easy way to understand it. The way it's set up is it's impossible for a team uh, who doesn't play that who is a not a conference champion and b who does not play on the last weekend of the year to get into the national championship game in the event that two or more teams share the same record.
1: Hmm. Yeah, so, crazy, and, yeah, and So
4: that- the way that works is in 2003, when the uh, computers were making up the majority of the BCS formula, Oklahoma lost their conference championship game to Kansas State, and many people said, well, if you're the team of the... largely thought to be the best team in the history of college football, which that team was set up until that point. You know, does one loss make you now the fourth best team of that season? And the computer said, no, you're second best, and they got in. What they did is they converted the formula to be two-thirds human, one-thirds computer. But the way it works is uh, really simple. In the human polls, or pardon me, in the computer polls, they differentiate you by your ranking. So if you are ranked number one, you get 25 points. If you're ranked number two, you get 24 points. Then you throw out your high and your low score of the six computer polls, and then you take those four scores, add them up, the middle four, and then divide by 100, and that's where you get your computer average. They don't do the same thing in the human polls. In the human polls, uh, you get a situation where in the Harris poll, there's 287 eligible points, 1,475 in the USA Today poll. So instead of saying the difference between 1 and 2 is a full ranking, they don't do that in the human polls. They take the points that you have and divide that by the eligible points in each respective poll. And then they take that number and they add that as one third of the equation. So if you're Oklahoma State and you've got 2,750 points, of the eligible 2875, then you have what equates to 0.9565, and that gets factored into the equation to match up with the 0.980, and what their conversion is in the USA Today, a 0.9559. Now, that's fine in the case where you have, where right now where you have two clear uh, teams that are one and number two, Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. But where it gets muddy is when you start to take a look at when teams have not only the same record but how are they viewed by uh the national audience so you know Oklahoma finished behind Texas after uh they beat Oklahoma state in 2008 and Texas beat Texas A&M Texas was ranked number 2 but Oklahoma was ranked number 3 the difference of points in the coaches poll was 1 point so in essence it was a wash and it was the same uh there was a flip flop in the Harris poll so also separated by less than a thousandth of a point becomes a wash So ultimately, what happens is, despite it being two thirds of the vote, in a situation where the numbers are close, oftentimes it goes to the computers, and that's how the BCS keeps those computers sacred. And when Boise State lost, based on not only how Boise State lost, but the setup for the rest of the season, which is Oklahoma, plays Oklahoma State on the road in Stillwater on the last weekend of the year when Alabama or LSU will have a bye. It really means that if one of those teams not only will not win, you know, their conference championship, they won't even be playing on a day where you'll have uh, the number four team or number five team in the BCS playing the number two team on the road, which would be huge currency not only in the computers but in the humans.
2: So, does Oklahoma control their own destiny for a seat at the national championship game at this point?
4: Uh, no, it's not that close. Uh, you know, based on, I mean, it's not that definitive based on the analysis that I've done. Oklahoma definitely has to beat Oklahoma State. Uh, that has to happen. USC um, you know needs to be competitive with Oregon to help. Oregon, the number one thing if you are an Oklahoma fan or an Oregon fan or even a fan of the SEC is you need to understand that Oregon doesn't matter. Uh Oregon's out. They're done. Uh the best that they can finish with from my estimations in the computer polls point 880. They're per- currently at point 860. Uh, flipping that, Oklahoma and Alabama are both projected. Oklahoma is considered projected to finish at point nine five zero with a win against Oklahoma State. Alabama would be point nine four zero being idle that last weekend of the year. Should LSU beat Arkansas, so Oregon's out. There's simply there's no way that they're going to have a differentiating number by beating the Pac-12 South champion on the last uh, Friday of the year and have it be enough to be able to get them into. Oregon's out. Um, the SEC becomes really uh, muddy and convoluted. And it's going to get very political. And if you think what happened in two thousand eight when Oklahoma lost to Texas forty five thirty five was bad, uh, the SEC is going to have a very similar situation should Arkansas beat Alabama, uh, based on how their tiebreaker works, uh, the politics that exist in and around the SEC, and in reality that they're really not set up to be able to handle what sort of politics are going to happen around should Arkansas beat Alabama. For and those me, should of us, I beat LSU.
2: For those of us who root. Just for chaos, what do we want to happen the rest of the way?
4: Uh, what you want to have happen, the easiest step for chaos is you're going to want to have Arkansas beat LSU because in the same way that the Pac, uh, in the Big 12 in 2008, the tiebreaker was the final BCS standings, that's the same for the SEC. So if Arkansas beats Alabama, uh, pardon me. If Arkansas beats LSU, LSU, Alabama, and Arkansas would all have the identical record, overall record, conference record, and divisional records. So you go to the BCS. So you're going to ask yourself, well, can you rank LSU behind Alabama, even though LSU beat Alabama on the road, or can you beat rank LSU ahead of Arkansas, even though Arkansas, you know, beat LSU on the road, or what about Alabama? Is Alabama ahead? you know would you put arkansas ahead of alabama even though alabama beat arkansas on the road and these are the big questions but what the sec doesn't do and what the big 12 should have done is in the situation where each teams are where where the third team and the first team are within 5 bcs rankings of one another which would be the case if arkansas beat lsu you take the top two teams and you take the head to head matchup so what would be interesting is if arkansas beats lsu where do you put lsu and because if you drop arkansas if if arkansas were to move ahead of lsu which it should be if they beat them on the last you know on thanksgiving weekend in baton rouge then alabama goes and lsu is going to go to the sugar bowl and get shut out but if uh so it, the one thing i do know 100% is arkansas has no chance. Thanks for coming. We appreciate it. It's fun to think <laughs> that you have a chance, but uh, enjoy the Cotton Bowl.
2: So, you know, it's a good thing as you're saying all this with all these teams that have could finish the season with one loss. It's a good thing we don't have a playoff because that would suck. You know, no, you definitely don't want to have a playoff no. because
4: you don't want to see you don't you you wouldn't want to see um, conference champions this year and the wild card teams. Get in. Uh, it, it, it's much better to uh, leave it to uh, backroom politics and just know that Houston's going to get rewarded for really hard work by getting their heads caved in by the SEC runner-up who gets shut out of the uh, SEC championship game. And you know, Oklahoma State should that you know Oklahoma State you know finally they'll make it to a BCS bowl this year, which is at least nice. But you know, that's assuming that yes, the Fiesta Bowl doesn't decide to do, uh, screw them over if Oklahoma beats them. But yeah, I mean, if you like chaos, it's uh, it's good. I mean. What I always like about um, teams like Boise State is in within an hour of making a bre- you know making a, um, a uh, argument of why they should play for a national championship and while they're worthy and they miss a field goal that would win them a game um, that they all of a sudden from being a third or fourth best team in the country worthy of playing for a national championship they're not, you know they're lucky and relegated to the top ten and in the case of the Harris poll they are an the 11th ranked team and last year Kyle Brotsman missed a field goal by an inch by an inch that would have won it and uh, they were all of a sudden no longer the third best team in the country they were the 12th <laughs> so but the same rationale doesn't apply to uh, LSU or Alabama so the number one important thing to understand about college football is uh, much like life and politics it's designed to frustrate you and it's designed to make you mutter and it really doesn't care what you think and until 2014 rolls around and the BCS contract ex- expires Uh, my Twitter account in the fall will uh, continue to get a lot of hits because I understand how this thing works and can explain it to fools.
2: In the uh, Zach CS, who are the two best teams in the country? Who should play for the national championship if it was up to you?
4: Well, I'll tell you this. I mean, I don't understand how Alabama, with a freshman quarterback who looked every bit of a freshman, a field goal kicker who couldn't do anything, one playmaker on the edge, and a running back who... uh, it was supposed to be a Heisman didn't show up is all of a sudden the third best team in the country um, so right now what I see is what I've said all year is there's two really good teams, two teams that I believe are separating themselves from the field and the rest are a bunch of pretenders and I think LSU is the real deal I also think LSU is going to get beat by uh, Arkansas and I think Oklahoma State's the real deal and uh, I think Oklahoma State is going to uh, basically make a hand puppet out of OU when they play him. but that's uh that's my feeling. And I think Alabama is is um very overrated. I think Oregon's soft, I think Oklahoma is, is bizarre and not the team that they should be with Landry Jones. Arkansas doesn't know who they are and I mean Clemson's Clemson.
2: And don't forget Oklahoma State as a coach who's a man in forty four.
4: <laughs> yeah, but you know what's interesting about that is he's forty two and fourteen since he since he made that speech. And if you take a look at the athletes that they have, they're you know fully optimized, and what you have in Wheaton is if you take a look at the difference between an Oklahoma State offense under Dana Holgerson versus what they have now is every Dana Holgerson creates every play designed to get eight yards, and if they can go bigger, that's great. but every play is designed to get eight yards. It's not the case in Oklahoma State. 50% of their plays are designed to get 15 more yards or 15 yards or better. And that's just a big play offense, and that's why they're able to put up those numbers. Also, they have a superior running game, great possession wide receiver, and two deep threats. They're huge matchup problems for everybody. I would be more concerned, from a coaching standpoint, not about what's going on in Stillwater, but the decision that Les Miles did to basically abandon Jarrett Lee and get back in the Jordan Jefferson business, because ultimately that is what I believe will be LSU's undoing.
2: Don't forget that Oklahoma State has the best owner in all of college sports.
4: (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, I know you're taking jabs here, and I (laughs) I don't disagree, but I think you know if we fool ourselves into thinking that that only goes on it. Oklahoma uh, or Oklahoma State, come on now. I mean everybody cheats and everybody does that and everybody has endowment. I mean, you know, that Gaylord building, if you've ever been on campus, uh, that journalism school in the name of uh you know, the uh that stadium now, uh that wasn't cheap either.
2: Right, right. That well, well, uh, Boone <laughs> Boone P Picker or whatever his name is. I mean he's gonna <laughs> T Boone Pickens. M- yeah, T Boone Pickens. He's gonna make sure that uh Oklahoma State gets in that BCS championship by Hooker Kirk one of these years and
4: yeah, uh, but look, they're going to Oklahoma State's in a position what they're doing is they, you know, they're shifting the tectonic plates of college football. And realistically, all you have to do is have one breakout year like they're doing to be, you know, in the conversation. Oklahoma State what was it 10 and 2 uh You know, last year, I mean, they've been good for a while, but what they're doing now to get them in this conversation is going to allow them to not only be successful for their brand, but what their facilities and what they have to offer. And a coach who's absolutely going nowhere. I mean, Mike Gundy's not stepping stoning to anywhere. I mean, he's the prodigal son up there.
2: Right. And he's 44, to be clear. Yep. (laughs) All right. Uh, (laughs) It's been great talking about all this stuff on the field, but... People would mock me as an interview if I didn't ask you about what is turning into the biggest scandal in the history of college sports in a year that will probably turn out to be the most scandalous year in the history of college sports. I mean, let's not forget we had this huge scandal at Ohio State, and we had North Carolina in the summer. We had Miami and words like death penalty in the fall, and here we are with this bizarre devastating sad disaster at Penn state. What is your take on everything that's went down in the last week or two over at happy Valley?
4: Um, well, I think that it really doesn't injustice to everything to talk about what happened to the scandal at Ohio state and even Miami in the same breath of what's going on at Penn state. Um, I think you can make a case, or at least most people who are presented with you know the, the the finances and the politics of college football to understand why a guy like Terrell Pryor might be able to want to uh, sell some jerseys on the side, or a kid might want to uh, you know you know reap the spoils of what Nevin Shapiro has to offer down in Coral Gables. Um, what happens in Happy Valley is uh, entirely different, and you know I. Can, it troubles me to admit that the subject matter that's going on there it hits very close to home with with me, and not because I'm a parent, but for a lot of issues that uh, many people in the country are probably scared to confront. So when I see the amount of adults and people who are said to be in charge at Penn State not doing the right thing, it it hurts me. It hurts me as a person. It hurts me as uh, somebody who believes that you should do the right thing. It hurts me as a father. It hurts me as somebody who was once a kid. It it hurts me just, you know, my humanity that you would have the insensitivity that was kicked off with uh, the president's statement two weeks ago to say that he stood by uh, two men who were now indicted for perjury and not mention the victims. And, you know, Penn State people can pretend like all this stuff matters and have their group prayers with Nebraska, but it doesn't matter um, they don't care it's It's a bunch of lip service and to it really bothers me when I hear situations like Paterno talked about as if he was this great guy and this amazing football coach. I mean, maybe it wasn't my lifetime, but what he's won one conference championship in the last fifteen years, two national championships in forty eight felt like he was actually you know moving the world over there. And to me, when you cover up child molestation and the fact that a 10-year-old was being raped and you were aware of it, I don't care what you did in that community. That's your lasting impression for me, and that kind of trumps everything else. And uh, I think Penn State are a bunch of cowards, and I think they're weak, and I wouldn't you know, mind if they uh, went away for a long, long time.
2: Where do you think they do go from here? I mean, do you think that it's in their best interest to maybe cool off and take a couple years away from football and reorganize their priorities the of,
4: of football is such big business right that they're not in a position to take away they you know they didn't cancel a game the, the topic of what's gone on until they uncover more depths and layers of this scandal will not ever be as hot as it was last week and you're dealing with a group where you need to have the board of trustees step in to fire the head coach and we're still not completely sure about what Mike McQuery's role in it, whether he stepped in, whether he shouted, whether he went to the police. But we know that he was allowed to operate, and he had no issue with working alongside or being in the same vicinity of somebody who he claims, through a grand jury, was raping its 10-year-old boy. And if they didn't want to suspend McQuery and I have to listen to that new interim head coach, and Jay Paterno talk about this once for you, Dad, It's an insult to humanity to think that, first of all, I don't care if it's Penn State, Kent State, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State. If you can't get your priorities straight and you think that this is about Joe Pa, uh, you're an effing fool and I don't like you and I got no time for you because you're a feeble simple-minded person that I just don't want anything to do with, and you probably aren't worth the breath in trying to save and you can just live your pathetic existence and hoping that your football team wins on Saturday. So where do they go from here? Uh, I'm glad it's not my problem, but I hope they continue to bungle it up a little bit more so we can just see truly and shine the spotlight of the importance of reporting this and the diligence that it takes to be a man and to be an adult when confronted with really tough situations and settings that are scary.
2: Did you happen to see the interview last night that Bob Costas did with the accused?
4: Yeah, yeah. That what, was uh, interesting. And My theory on that is you, know, you listen to Joe Amendola standing or sitting next to uh, you know, Costas. You know, I mean, of course Amendola doesn't care that you know, he would let him around his son. Amendola is the same guy who uh, impregnated a 17-year-old girl. Uh, who was working in his law office and didn't get prosecuted because in Penn State statutory rape is if you're 15 years and 364 days. On your 16th birthday, you're no longer you're eligible to have sex consensually with somebody over the age of 16 in the state of Pennsylvania. So what I think Joe Mandola did is very simply he said he knows this isn't a winnable case, and he knows he's dead man walking. I think he just did a commercial for his... Uh, for his law practice to show that uh, if you're, you know, a scumbag or if you're in trouble and you're looking for a criminal defense attorney, that he's open for business.
2: Do you think that Sandusky believed any of the things that he said last night? I mean, how shocked were you when Bob Costas posed the question? I think it was, do you find boys sexually attractive? And he couldn't even get the word no out.
4: Well, I don't think it was the word no. It was, uh, to me, it was the parroting of a question. Uh, I know that you know, it's human nature and psych, like, you know, basic psychology that more often than not, when you parrot a question, you're either looking for the right answer or you're, uh, or you're, you're working on a lie. Um, do I think, I think the real problem is here is Sandusky to be the type of guy who could rack up a roster of eight victims under the age of 16 who he, uh, who he raped, or at least he's been indicted on in 40 counts of rape uh, in various charges, that when you are allowed to operate for the length of time he did, and your only punishment is having your keys taken away from you, it breeds a level of narcissism. And this goes well beyond just what he does as a football coach or as an icon. And I think the sad news is that Sandusky more than likely believes his lies and has gotten himself to a point where he has to be all in with with what he's saying. So, um, no, it doesn't shock me to hear him say that. It The only thing that shocked me was just how poorly coached he was to uh, present himself to a national media, and that if he was foolish, foolish enough to think that a guy like Bob Costas was going to treat him with kid gloves.
2: Yeah, Bob Costas hammered him. Bob Costas is great. You know, uh, way back at episode six of the show, uh, we were really treated with, a lot of respect by a guy named Joe Piznanski, who I know you know. And he is in a very unenviable situation of being spending the last, since the summertime, embedded at State College uh, at Happy Valley and 50,000 words into a 60,000-word biography about Joe Paterno. And he's been basically dropped. uh, A thesis-changing scandal has been dropped on him what would you do if you were Joe Posnanski, and have you seen some of the things he said, and what do you feel about him, and where do you think he goes from here, and, and what 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 do you do if you're in charge of a project like that at this point?
4: Well, I think that you know truth is the final arbiter of all things, and you have to do the right thing. And if you are going to get into the world of journalism, you have to have a journalistic integrity and ethics. And if you're going to get into the world of anything— Uh, whether it's journalism, coaching, podcasting, publicity, parenting, that we would hope that you would have a moral compass and a fearless resolve to tell the story. And oftentimes, too oftentimes, that especially in the world of college football, that usually takes place in small towns that are the primary source of uh, income and revenue for that small town, people are willing to uh, forego the story because it's scary or it's hard. And I wouldn't, you know... I I would be lying if I said there, I haven't been times where I've been confronted with things on a much smaller scale where it was easier to take the uh, easy way out. Um, You know, I would, I would say Joe should probably go back and uh, watch almost famous where uh, William Miller's struggling to write the story and he calls Lester bangs, you know, you know, and Lester bangs just gives him the advice of how he should write the story. You know, you gotta, you gotta tell the story, especially if you're a journalist, don't be afraid of what happens. Um, sometimes you have to rip up your story because sometimes you find out that guys that you thought were great were actually people who covered up child rape.
2: Well, if you're writing a 60,000 page or 60,000 word book about a guy who's, as you said, everything is trumped by the fact that he, you know, covered up child rape, what, how many pages should be about child rape and how many should be about the things that, unfortunately are now trumped like where does the good things that joe paterno fit into this story now
4: well you tell me i mean how how can you know how if you want to paint with broad strokes then you have to paint with broad strokes and when you read an article about a uh, a sporting event you know how much time is spent on the end result versus, you know, the third quarter. I mean, Phillip Rivers and the San Diego Chargers last few weeks to the Raiders, uh, and we read an article and we heard stories about the Chargers losing. And we saw people try to define the random with quantitative analysis that made no sense. Sometimes you just drop the ball. So we read stories that were not necessarily in conjunction with what the headline were because it was convenient and easy. So uh, if you want to tell the story of Joe Paterno, you have to tell the story about... uh, how he also said that players who was convicted of DUI didn't hurt someone, so he didn't see it was a problem, or the player in 2003 who was arrested for sexual assault was still allowed to suit up and play in the bowl game. you got to tell the whole story. And if you think that we know Joe Paterno because he has sunken shoulders, lost a lot of weight, man boobs and wears thick glasses, that he's your friend and he's your buddy and he's Joe Pa, man, you're mistaken. And you don't know any of these guys. And these guys are out there for their best interest. Um, and you had to implore these guys to talk about the victims and if jay paterno is continuing to push the agenda and the new assistant coaches you know this one's for you joe how come he hasn't grabbed a wrist and say hey why don't you knock that off i need to go away and i work in publicity and i can tell you some very basic things when i'm reading the day after you're fired that joe paterno only cares about penn state yet the headline is that he's now hired a criminal defense attorney Sometimes you, even though you did need to hire that criminal defense attorney, you got to go back to basics. And I don't think there's any dissenting opinion that has ever existed in the world of Joe Paterno, and that's why he's been allowed to operate throughout this last decade, even though the Penn State people try to remove him for being out of touch. So, I want to ask you a couple questions. One, how important is it that we get a sixty thousand uh, word anything about Joe Paterno? Personally, I can give a shit. Uh, second, if you're going to tell the story about him tell the story because sometimes the finish to the fourth quarter trumps everything you saw in the first three
2: can't argue with you Uh, zach rosenfield you can follow him on twitter he's at sooner zach now uh i kind of want to end this on a little bit more of a positive note um so i don't know if you know but this is episode 51 of the sportscasters episode 50 was last week we were lucky enough to have mike Tarico on the show we also had the great dave Damaschek on the show
4: I yeah. saw Dave last week myself.
2: And uh, you are still doing some stuff with Dave, right? Why don't you just tell us a little bit about where we can still hear you other places if we'd like, right? Uh,
4: yeah. I mean, I, I go on Dave uh, maybe once every couple months. Uh, I come on with you, and I'll do some select stuff with uh, ESPN uh, Radio when they ask me on. They want to uh, use some accuracy score analysis. Um, but I enjoy also dialoguing with people via Twitter and uh you know, I mean I, I guess I keep Facebook kinda of private or personal to me, so uh, don't bother trying to friend me on Facebook. I'm not gonna accept you. I mean you can, Steven, you can Don anything. But, but the listeners. Um, right,
2: right. We're already friends on Facebook, man. Nobody, yeah, yeah, exactly. I kinda did, keep
4: yeah. that stuff private. Right. Be, uh, unless you want to see about like pictures of my kid and uh you know, proof that I ate another McRib. Uh <laughs> on Facebook page. <laughs> That's true, but <laughs> he's not lying. I mean I <laughs> You know, I, I continue to love sports and uh, follow it in my free time. It's a little bit harder as uh, life gets more complicated and you uh, raise a 14-month-old kid. But uh, like you, I always have a, a really nice place for, um, for a guy like Dave who went out of his way to uh, make time for little old me.
2: So tell me about the light sauce. What is that? Light <laughs> sauce?
4: <laughs> yeah, because, look, the basics of a McRib is, look, The sandwich is delicious. Mm -hmm. You don't need to muddy it up with barbecue sauce. You overput, you know, this is what I tell people who go to sushi and dunk their sushi in, uh, in, in the soy sauce. It's okay to let your palate evolve. You know, you don't need to mask everything in condiments. So two things. One, the barbecue sauce is too much. It's unnecessary. Also, when I'm done eating, I don't want it to look like a crime scene you know that shit gets everywhere so just lay off the sauce chances are the mcdonald's employee is still going to put a healthy dose on there even though you told him you don't want it dripping off the side like a like a vampire so just lay out the sauce let me enjoy the uh the wonderful synthetic pork mixed with onions and pickle and let's call it a day until we get the next one
2: so you are in the business of pr now and Mm -hmm. uh i guess i want to ask you as kind of a last question if you were forced to represent a couple of clowns like Don and i <laughs> uh what would what would be your angle like how would you promote the sportscasters? because i want to take the some first notes thing to I would say
4: is go get some money so you can pay me
2: <laughs> <laughs> how much
4: uh I'm out of your price range You're out of but mind. what i would i would con- what I would say to uh you is what I would say to anybody who's um you know chasing your dream or especially in PR is uh, or anything is uh, have a clear definition of what you want to accomplish. So what I would say to you is if you're looking to add publicity to what you're doing, I mean ask yourself what's the goal of it? Why would you invest in it? I mean if you're having, you know, guys like Jeff Perlman who were on before me and Mike Tarico and Dave Damashek and Richard Deitch and all the wonderful people you're getting, obviously you're able to do that on your own. If you're looking to expand your brand into a bigger uh, platform and have a better distribution, uh, there's ways you can do that, leveraging uh, your ability to not only be a good interviewer, but also uh, you know bring in guests and conduct interviews and move them along. So what I would say is the number one thing you want to do when you want publicity is have a goal and then have a way to measure return on investment. Because without that you're just, you know, throwing money into the wind to be able to tell people you have a publicist.
2: <laughs> well, you know, I feel like I could ask you anything and get a great response, and I guess that's why we love having you on so much. My mom's gonna be excited you're back. She's been asking me, Where's that Zach you guy? Where's that? She doesn't quite know how to say Zach to score. <laughs> now she's confused it's Sooner Zach. But she's going to be glad you were on, and we're glad you were on, and we can't wait to do it again soon.
4: Oh, man, Steve, I, I, love, I love doing this. I love coming on. Uh, it's a little bit harder nowadays because, you know, obviously my life is a little bit uh, more different than it was before. But uh, as you know, I, couldn't help, I, I, I will always support you guys and love it, and I enjoy that I can speak candidly and give long-winded answers.
2: Thanks, buddy. We'll talk to you soon.
4: You got it. All
2: right. Wow. Sooner, Zach, bringing it. He was on it. Absolutely. He's been on this show many times, and it's great every time, but that felt like something different. And I was just saying to Don off the air, you know, I did three interviews today, and one of them I prepared for weeks for, the Jeff Perlman one. Another one I chased for weeks, the Steve Russian one. And that one was just, I got to say, anyone who's ever been an interviewer, I think I can call myself an interviewer. I, I do three a week. I, uh, but that was easy. That was a real easy one. I, I he's, knew,
3: he's very conversational. He's I, not. He's very candid. It's not. It, it's almost like the Zach you get on the air would be the same Zach you would get if we were just sitting around a table shooting the shit. And that was
2: great, and I hope everyone enjoyed it as much as we did. Again, I want to thank Jeff Perlman, Steve Russian, and – Zach Rosenfield, for joining us today on episode 51 of the Sportscasters. want to remind you this Sunday, if you get a chance to watch some football with me, my live blog will be at ProPlayerInsiders.com. Uh, of course, you can find this podcast on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Sportscasters. You can also find us on Twitter. We are at Sports underscore Casters. Don is at DonLakeSports. I am at Diversity23. You can email us for a chance to win Glenn Stout's book about 1912 and Fenway Park. The email address is the sportscasters at gmail.com. You can follow our blog, which is thesportscasters.blogspot.com. And you can find all this information on our website, www.sports-casters.com. One thing about our website, sports-casters.com, is we kind of updated and upgraded the way that the RSS feed is accessible for the <laughs> listeners. <laughs> yeah, so, did. if you're interested in following us via the RSS feed, that should all be set up the way you would expect it to be. When you go to the website now, there's a little reader uh, icon icon in the menu in the address bar, and then there's also an RSS link that you can click under the Stitcher link. Right, and it also comes with descriptions of the podcast right in the rss feed so we upgraded and updated that for the listeners all right last piece of business for today is pick four last week i went two and two i won yale over union four to nothing in college hockey action and i also won my bold prediction of the week that the seahawks would beat the ravens 22 to 17 i lost the game of the week the the uh stanford stanford oregon yeah yeah, didn't they didn't bring it. Uh, they were beat badly by Oregon, fifty-three to thirty. I was, re- I was a little surprised by that one, and uh, also I was. We mentioned this last week. This was Don's win. Don went one and three. Ugh. Don's win was the Patriots over the Jets. I lost that game. It was basically Vegas daring you to pick a winner, and I made a. I erred here because why did I think that the
3: Patriots are ever going to lose three games in a row? Well. <laughs> because of all the reasons we game last week, the everything probably said pick the jets. Like every logical argument would say, pick the jets, except for the one that the Patriots just don't lose three games in a row. They don't lose two games in a row usually. So that was my only logic actually last week was that they just don't just the intangible thought that they don't lose three in a row.
2: You admitted that you don't
3: know how to pick Carolina or Titans games. No. And you were wrong again. Absolutely. Uh, I pick Carolina all the time. I'm sucked in by the allure of uh, Cam Newton, Newton. apparently. You had them minus four. They lost 30 to three. Yeah, close one. And you (laughs) had your beloved Bills at minus three. They lost 44 to seven. New week. Start us off. All right. My first – the game of the the week this week is the upstart Bengals at the Ravens. Uh, The Bengals are a seven-point underdog, so I'm going to take the points there. I think, if anything, it will be a low-scoring game and uh, the Bengals should be able to keep it tight. That's at 1 o'clock on CBS.
2: Yeah, I kind of agree that the Bengals will they will be, they'll be ready for this. This is a big day for Andy Dalton and Jermaine Gresham and A.J. Green, who I'm
3: hoping plays. Yeah, it would be a big bonus here. Uh,
2: this is a big day for them, and this could be a coming-out party, and I don't think anyone believes they're for real right now. But if they can beat the Ravens, people are going to think they're for real, and that's big motivation. I'm going to take the Bengals too. I don't know if they're going to win the game, but I definitely think that they're going to be in it. So I'm going to take the seven points in the Bengals.
3: My host choice this week is uh, a homer pick. The Bills right now are getting one point at the Dolphins. So basically, again, it's just who do you think is going to win? That's another 1 o'clock CBS game. I'm going to take the Bills plus the one point. Look, the Bills probably aren't as good as – when people were at a high, maybe right after the New England win or after the Eagles win. But I don't think they're as bad as a team that's gotten embarrassed in the last two games. I think they probably finished the year around 9-7. and seven. And these are the types of games they're going to have to go out and win. This would be an embarrassing loss. To do everything you've done this year and then to lose to the Dolphins, who are better than their record, but still. You've got to win games like this. So I'm assuming the Bills aren't going to – Totally do a 180 and go back to being bad. So I'm going to pick the Bills. All right. I'm going to try to help Don out with the Titans. (laughs) Uh,
2: The Titans play the Falcons this week, and they're getting seven points. I just watched the Falcons play a must-win game against the Saints, one of those games that you put everything into. They came up short. They might not have a lot of confidence in their coach right now who made a truly bizarre decision that we didn't get into today but it's been covered by plenty of people right julio jones is injured he might not play matt hasselbeck is having a great season chris johnson finally showed up for a game let's see if he can do it two games in a row and i'm going to take the seven
3: points and the titans that's a 415 game on cbs sunday my worldwide leader pick this week i'm gonna keep riding the patriots it's tough to give 12 points to anybody but the chiefs are going to be without castle Uh, The Patriots have just embarrassed the Jets, and they don't seem like a team that falls victim to becoming complacent after wins. I expect them to come out, and they might win this game by 30. Uh, That might be an exaggeration, but probably not by much. I'll uh, eat the 12 points all day long. Monday night, 830. I'm going to take the Patriots. I am going to take the Jets over the Broncos
2: in this week's Thursday night NFL Network game November 17th at 8:20 Jeez, when you win a game and you can only complete two passes, <laughs> that that's a mirage to me. Yeah. You're not going to win a lot of games with your quarterback going 2 and 8. Is he 3 and 0 oh right now? He's 3 and 0. Oh. Well, yeah, 3 and 0 oh this year, I think. I don't know. I heard his record and it's good. Right.
3: I just it's strange. It's definitely an anomaly.
2: It doesn't, it doesn't feel right to me, and I think the Jets are like the Patriots in leadership. When they lose a game, they tend not to lose the second game. It's a quick turnaround, which I think is a better thing instead of sitting around brewing about it. The Jets, I think, are a much, much better team here, and I can. I, I think they're going to easily win by a touchdown. So I'm going to pick the Jets over the
3: Broncos on Thursday Night Football at 8.20 on the NFL Network. My bold prediction this week uh while I was picking, or getting ready for my pick four picks this week, before we had discussed what the game of the week would be, I had said, and we should really define maybe what constitutes as bold, but my bold pick this week is going to be that the Bengals win outright. Uh, they're a seven-point underdog, so I guess that would at least be... I think any time you have seven points and you wave them, that's bold. So I'm going to say, I'm going to kind of double down on the Bengals here, and I'm going to say they win that game outright. I don't... I don't like the Ravens' offense at all. I mentioned earlier that the Bengals are the number two rush defense in the league, and if I'm the Bengals, I dare Flacco to beat me. I have a guy on Ray Rice all night long, and I keep seven guys in the box and tell Flacco to do your best. And I think the Bengals' offense is competent enough. Obviously, like we said, if A.J. Green is there, this helps out a lot to beat the Ravens' secondary. So I'm going to take the Bengals to win outright.
2: One team in the league that sticks out to me as being very disappointing this year is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Seems like two of their biggest stars, or three of their biggest stars on offense are having sophomore slumps. Just such a strange team. Blunt and Freeman and Williams yeah. have not been this year what we thought they might be last year. I think the character issues with Williams and Blunt have reared their ugly head a little bit this year. Not that they've gotten in any huge trouble off the field. It just, Although, I guess Blunt did. Not huge trouble, but right <laughs> trouble. Uh, I just don't like the Buccaneers. I, they don't feel right. Saints beat them real handily. Coming off a loss to St. Louis, I was surprised how punchless the Bucks were that day. Bucks got beat bad last week, and look who's next on the schedule, but the Packers. Yeah, I'm going to take the Packers minus 28 points. Double the spread. Oh, of wow! <laughs> double the spread of 14 let say that the, uh, the Packers lay uh, one of their
3: beatdowns like we saw last night on the Bucks Sunday, 1 o'clock on Fox. Interesting thing about the Packers, real quick. I think a lot of people, um, maybe people with those supercomputers like AccuScore and uh, whatever numbers that uh, Aaron Schatz has. Football and, facts, whatever right. Gary heard Aaron Schatz say, say today they had the Packers at about a 5% chance to go undefeated. So it still seems pretty low. That said, they're not going to be an underdog in any game for the rest of the season, probably through the Super Bowl, if they make it that far. They have Tampa, they have the Lions twice. Okay, that's what I was looking for, is their their schedule is brutal. They have Tampa,
2: the Lions twice, the Giants,
3: the Raiders, the Chiefs, and the Bears. So they have a very... Other than the Chiefs, those are all losable games. But, I mean, nobody talks about how tough that schedule is, I think because they just assume that the Packers are that much better than all these other teams, but... They have a lot of losable games, I especially that Week 16 of the Bears and the Giants game. Those are going to be tough games. And it's tough to go undefeated. The pressure yep. is going to start
2: to build up. The question of whether they should be sticking their players out there to face that.
3: I wonder what the Vegas uh, – there's got to be a Vegas prop bet on who wins or loses first. The- if, if I gave you $1,000, would you rather put that money
2: on – the fact that they would go undefeated or that they wouldn't knowing you'd probably get a bigger
3: return on betting that they would that they would i guess i would bet that they would and i'm rooting for it i guess I, that that week 16 that's a tough that's a tough spot though they could prob i mean they're going to wrap up their division and I, what are they two games ahead right now mm-hmm. yeah more than that aren't they they three might games be. Ahead. Okay, they're three games ahead. Three full games, plus so, they've beaten Chicago already. Right, so basically four games ahead. They're going to wrap that division up probably by week 14 or Sounds s- right. sooner. Sounds right. So that game might not mean anything to them, and there's a very good chance that that game means a lot to Chicago. So, man, I don't know. I guess I would take the $1,000. night game, too, on Christmas. Is it really? Yep, Christmas night. I would probably take the money and go with the safer bet that they don't go undefeated. But I am pulling for it. I, I think it's a pretty likable team. All right.
2: Once again, thanks to Jeff Perlman. Once again, thanks to Steve Russian. And thanks to Zach Score. We will be back next Tuesday for a special Thanksgiving edition of the podcast. And uh, we will see you then. Don the Hip. I